What kind of a show are you guys putting on here today? You're not interested in art? No. Well, look, we're going to do this thing. We're going to have a conversation. From Chicago, this is Film Spotting. I'm Adam Kempinar. And I'm Josh Larson. Once upon a time, there was a girl. For the uninitiated, that was the terrifying Lupita Nyong'o and Jordan Peele's Us. Released in March, Peele's provocative horror film was one of the most talked about films early in the year. But will it be remembered here at year end? It sounds ominous. I'm going to remember it. Don't worry. Okay. This week on the show, it's part one of our top 10 of 2019 roundtable. Joining us, Michael Phillips from the Chicago Tribune and from Polygon.com and the Next Picture Show podcast, Tasha Robinson. It's all ahead. If you want to get crazy, we can get crazy on Film Spotting. Welcome to Film Spotting. Happy holidays, everyone. Happy Welcome to holidays. our yeah, top 10 films of 2019 roundtable. Of course, I'm here. Josh is here. Michael Phillips from the Chicago Tribune is here. Michael, great to have you good as always. See, good to see you all. Tasha wow. Robinson, the film and TV editor at Polygon and co-host of the Great Next Picture Show podcast, also back. Thank you so much. Always. Always and forever. So I do have to start by saying that the matching red jumpsuits are festive, but a little unnerving. I appreciate, though, that you, you came prepared. We, we have two more people coming. How do you feel about the oh, no. scissors, the really highly polished scissors we all brought? Keep them out. Keep them out I mean, of the studio. I mean, it's kind of ruining the Santa vibe, really. Taking the Santa jumpsuit I'm okay with. Yeah. This is ridiculous. I think the rule should be knives in, scissors out. You guys are so rude. I, I brought you these scissors as a, a holiday present. Uh-huh. I intended to give them to you, possibly vigorously, over and over, if I don't like any of your movie picks, and you're rejecting them up front. Yeah. Yikes. Well, that might be smart on our part because I think we're (laughs) destined for one or two battles as we get through this two-part look back at the year in cinema. We do have part one, obviously, this week, The Outliers, we like to call it. These are movies that only showed up on one of our lists. So in each case, only one of us is right, of course, and everyone else is wrong. There are a lot of them. It will be a packed show. Next week, you'll hear part two, which is what we're calling our consensus picks. These are movies that, for the most part, showed up on more than one of our lists. And in that episode, we'll also share our individual number one choices for best film of the year. I think by the time you get through that episode and you hear kind of the final six picks or so, you'll feel like those six movies kind of do represent the best in cinema. Hopefully, we will pull that off, though there may be some disagreements along the way. So I want to start just real quick, though, talking about the year in film generally. I think we sit here every year since these roundtables began going back to 2007 and say, yeah, it was a good year because we watch a fair number of movies and we can always find five to ten movies that we're very passionate about. But 2019 seems exceptional. It really does seem like a standout year, I'll say at least in this decade. And I'm basing that on a lot of things, but just going through this ranking process, my six through 10 probably could be my one through five, might even be a better one through five than I've got. And my 11 through 20 picks all could contend for a six through 10 slot. So Michael, did you feel the same way? I did. I did feel the same way. I think the way my mind works at at this kind of chaotic time of year, I I can get to my 
20, 25, 27 films that, that meant the most to me fairly easily. And this year, getting, getting the 10 out of that group was uh, depressing and, and uh, sad because I mean, mm-hmm. it really was, you know, it was as meaningless to put one film against another as, oh, I don't know, like the brackets you guys do, you know, on the show. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's, that's how meaningless. so it began. That's how meaningless it was. Uh-huh. Me. Yeah. And you worried I was going to be the one with the stabbing. Right. <laughs> he, are you going just, to? He just stabbed you in your heart with I metaphorical know. scissors. I know. Now, are you going to be the contrarian here too, Tasha, and say, eh, 2019 was just okay? No, I'm saving up my contrarianism for the, the course of the next two hours. I have so many disagreements <laughs> with things on this list. But 2019 was a fabulous year for film. And I think you can see that just by... Like looking at our collective lists, just the sheer variety of films on them, the the idiosyncrasy of the films on them. I, I feel like this is just a year of tremendous vision and and tremendous individuality in cinema. So many of the films I'm looking at on this this list, these collective lists, are just really distinctive visions from from really distinctive filmmakers, and I'm really excited about it. I, I've never been in agreement with uh, Roger Ebert's claim that there are, there are no depressing films unless they're badly made. I find some films very depressing. But I will disagree slightly with Michael about finding it depressing, winnowing this list down to 10. Because for me, every single thing on that, on that 10, and all, even on the top five, just came down to, I get to recommend these movies to people. <laughs> I, yeah. I get to try to, to push people who maybe haven't seen these movies. And in every case, it's it's something that I'm very excited for people to experience. Mm-hmm. Well, the variety of titles we'll get into and the fact that this first installment is going to hit on so many different titles makes that exciting too because these aren't the same five every critic is talking about. And so some of these will be movies that people haven't heard of. And I think, Adam, you and I have some context to bring to placing this year within history, given that we did our 9 from 99 series this past year and looked at the films of that great year, 1999, 20 years ago. And it seems to me, I I wonder if we'll look at 2019 in somewhat similar terms. Those were Some of those titles were revolutionary and mind-bendy in a way Mm -hmm. that maybe um, allow them to stand out in history more than some of the titles from this year. But I also think, and maybe we'll get into this, some of the titles from this year are responding to recent year's events in ways that are fascinating and make them earmarkers or landmarks that that will last as time goes on. I think that perspective is valuable too, especially as I know a lot of outlets have already embarked or have published their best of the decade list. We plan to embark on that later in the year and just kind of scratching out some thoughts here early on. I see at least five movies, maybe six, from our list that I feel like have to be in the conversation for best of the decade. They have to at least be considered, and that's a lot for any one year from this decade. So again, 2019 for us, a great year, and we are going to hear from some very smart people Beyond us, of course, we're going to hear from some guests. We invited some filmmakers, some other critics, some cinephiles to chime in with their favorite film of the year, and we will sprinkle those throughout these two episodes. And we're going to start with someone who doesn't just talk about the best movies of the year like we do. He decided, I'm just going to go ahead and make one of the best movies of 2019, Ryan Johnson. Hey, Adam and Josh, it is Ryan Johnson calling in for my annual best movie of the year voicemail and i feel like every single time i call in i say what a great year it's been for movies this year though holy moly there were so many great movies um and so many that i could name as my 
top of the year, Parasite, Lighthouse, Uncut Gems, Irishman, High Life, Ad Astra, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, Mirrored Story. Oh, my God, it's insane this year. Um, I'm going to call out, though, a movie that came out earlier in the year that really, really hit me out of the blue and stuck with me. And I wanted to get more attention so more people go and see it. It's called The Last Black Man in San Francisco. It's directed by Joe Talbot, and it's a low-budget movie shot in San Francisco that is about many things. It's about, it's kind of about gentrification, but it's really about sort of the way that we kind of tell ourselves stories about the notion of home. It is a beautiful, beautiful film. Highly recommend everyone check out The Last Black Man in San Francisco. I'm naming it. It's my favorite of the year. Why not? Uh, guys, I hope you had a fantastic year. I hope to talk to you soon in 2020. All right, guys. Take care. Bye. Bless him. That, yeah. is, a, that is a good choice. It is a good it's choice. It's almost like we'll be uh, talking about that more eventually. We might. Lovely, as always, to hear from Ryan Johnson, of course, the writer-director of Knives Out. My favorite part, beyond naming a very good film as his favorite of the year, is that he got in, I think, eight other titles. <laughs> <laughs> so I was glad to hear The Lighthouse, because I don't know if that's going to get another no. mention. But yeah, Robert Eggers crazy demented sea yarn which i loved quite a bit it's an example of one of those that possibly in another year would Mm -hmm. have made my top 10 no but you're right i'll go ahead and spoil it that's probably the only mention that movie's going to get in about four hours of episodes here on this best of 2019 roundtable but i think he had a great observation there about that movie we will talk more about it here in the future but that idea that it's a film about the stories we tell ourselves about the notion of home. And we see that in that character, Jimmy Fails, someone who is clinging to this narrative of his family that really defines his identity. And Mont, played by Jonathan Majors, I think one of the best performances of the year. He's a writer, and you see later a one-man playhouse, really. (laughs) And he's chronicling his neighborhood and its stories. So just a lovely debut film, and very excited that Ryan mentioned it here to get us going. And Tasha, you talked about idiosyncrasy. That's certainly the case here. On this show, 16 outliers to get to, movies that made only one of our lists. We're going to go more or less in order from lowest rated to highest, but it isn't really about doing a straight 10 to 1 countdown. And Tasha, yes, you do have more outliers than anyone else. Congratulations. You're the big winner. Half of your picks in this top 10 are unique to you. Nice. Well, this is why we read critics. Seriously, that's I mean, right. This is why, this is why I want to. Re- I want to hear what Tasha Robinson has to say yeah, about a film uh, I haven't heard about. This know? is why we uh, have critics is a much more generous reading than why don't you like the best films of the year? <laughs> oh, we'll get to that. <laughs> well, I'm, don't worry. You know, I'm not your father. You know, it's like it's like, it's like when I have those discussions with my parents. It's always like, in fact, in fact, my mom. <laughs> The last Black Man in San Francisco was a film that my mom saw based on the review. And she said, well, I saw the last Black Man in San Francisco. And she said, "Uh, here's your father. You know, (laughs) (laughs) what disappointment. Open-minded, open-minded woman. Did you have to refund them? No, no, no. no, But she, you know, I actually loved that she got in the car and went. I mean, I I do. I do. And she she goes to all kinds of stuff. My mother stopped taking my recommendations for film around (laughs) the piano. Mm. Oh, okay. (laughs) (laughs) Everyone out there who does really care about the rankings and wants to know exactly where we're slotting these films and maybe it gets a little confusing as we jump around, just go to filmspotting.net. Click on lists right there at the top of the page, and you can see every movie in their proper order. With that, let's dive into the outliers. Josh, you're starting us off with your number 10 film of the year. 
Yeah, let's get into this. My number 10 is High Life. And silly me for thinking that Claire Denis, now this is a filmmaker whose works have baffled me, mesmerized me for a long time. So I don't know why I expected maybe her English language space film might be a little more palatable, maybe a little more conventional, something easier. And wow, this is as provocative, as disturbing, as mysterious, I think, as anything of hers that I've seen, at least, even though it does have this sci-fi story. Uh, This is a handful of convicts who have volunteered to be launched into space as part of a experimental journey slash um, they're basically being experimented on instead of being in prison is the scenario here as they head across the galaxy. Robert Pattinson is one of those convicts. And then Juliette Binoche also plays uh, kind of a literal witch doctor in a lot of ways. I know I look like a witch. I mean, you all call me Baltura, right? You're Foxy and you know it. I just don't understand how you can still believe in your class two mission. It's like you become a shaman of sperm. This movie, it's spooky, it's surreal, and on first viewing struck me as uh, having sort of a biblically infused parable about sex being a curse. But I could have that wrong, and that's Hmm. one of the reasons I really wanted to put it on my list. I saw it, I think I was traveling when it first released here in Chicago, so I came to it a little late, missed the initial discourse, and um, again, was just sort of baffled by it, but in a good way, and certainly came away with a very bleak sense of the movie's ending, but I'm eager to reconsider that as well on a revisit. When I've talked to some other people, they see it as very hopeful, and always a good sign to me when you have people who have completely different interpretations mm-hmm. of a film that that's that is that dense and complicated. So for now, it's on the list just because I appreciate this strange mix of Tarkovsky and Kubrick. And at the same time, it's 100 percent Denis. Um, I can't say I appreciate the family show, so I'll just call it the F-box for now. But <laughs> I, I'm surely haunted by it. And it's one of those one of those pieces from 2019 cinema that's going to stick in my brain yeah. for a long You're not long getting rid of that. Time. No. So, yeah, High Life from Claire Denis. Uh, it's made on my list there at number 10. Damn good film. It I mean, is. I mean, it's one of her best, I think. And, and you'd think it would be, as you say, her, her most conventional, just or her most kind of like sort of tied to maybe the less helpful tropes of a science fiction picture with – a bankable star at, at the at the top, but I think if Robert Pattinson has taught us anything, is that he <laughs> he he is just simply you know going through every good and great director alive mm-hmm. he can find to make himself a better actor. And man, we're all we're all getting rewarded with that and with challenging that. material. That's, Absolutely, right? That's Absolutely. a guarantee. Yeah, you're much more enthusiastic, I think, about uh, the challenging aspects of this film than I am. This, I found this film. Everything that you say, I think, is true. I think it is mysterious. I I think it is haunting. But uh, none of that really sat well with me. I found it almost belligerently opaque in terms of having any idea who these characters were, why they were there, what they wanted, what they'd done, how we were supposed to feel about them. And I don't necessarily want a film to take my hand and lead me to emotional places of here's how you should feel about every character on screen, but having some idea of who I'm looking at, what they want, uh, just like on on a basic level is fairly important to me in a film. And I just found this film mysterious in a way that I, I didn't, I didn't find satisfying at all. Mm-hmm. And, and it's strange because I almost think like that sex as a curse reading is right there on the surface. And one reason I, suspect myself of, you know, maybe I shouldn't go to it too easily is because 
Um, it seems to be what it's putting out there out front, that it's just this, uh, it's a burden to bear for these characters. Uh, going back to the F-box for Juliet Binoche, it doesn't even give her what she went into it for. Um, it's it's just an urge to satisfy, and it's kind of this sticky means to a reproductive end. Um, and again, that's a kind of a harrowing vision, but to me, a very consistent and clear one um, that did give me a lot to think about. Yeah. The, one, the, one thing, the one through line in a lot of Denise's work that I think is becoming a little predictable and it, it's also it's I think it's genuinely felt in many ways. So I, I don't want to I don't want to dismiss it, but there's always an incestuous theme to varying degrees that sort of you know either surfaces or stays just below the surface in many of the stories. And I I never get the feeling that it's entirely resolved, which I which I appreciate because it's not hitting the nail too hard on the head. But I think I think it's by now it's becoming a bit of a, a reflex, and I'm not really sure it's 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 a fruitful one for her. That leads me to the bleak ending. Actually, those are the conversations I've had with people is how they read that element yeah, yeah. and how it plays into the ending. And again, I, to me, it's kind of obvious um, in a way that's that's really distressing. And you're right, would be uh, in line with some of the other times that's kind of been tiptoed around in her films. Yeah, and to Tasha's point, I think you know, if in, I mean, it's all people are going to catch up with it how they how however they will streaming wise, you know, to see it now. But I think it's it's not a Netflix and chill. It's a Netflix and huh? You know? <laughs> it might be a <laughs> Netflix so. and stress. It's, <laughs> it's yeah. a fairly it's a fairly straining film, both for its its graphic content and its troubling content, and for just its its sheer confusing content. But it certainly is not a film that people are going to watch and say, oh, well, I guess I just saw a movie. Like, it's it's certainly yeah. the kind of movie that sparks spirited debate. And it, I did not care for it much. It didn't sit well with me. But certainly after having praised the idiosyncrasy of this year's movies, I can't give it too much too much flaw, too much accusation. Too much beef. Falls it into that category. <laughs> very much a vision, a very much a specific and unique vision from yeah. somebody who knows what they want to do. And to show you how confused I am, I find the ending as bleak as a movie ending could be. And yet, I think I'm with some of those people who find it oddly hopeful at the same time, which really doesn't make any sense at all. And yet it kind of does. If you see Claire Denis' High Life, for me, what you're talking about in terms of sex and the incestuousness, it fits in with what Denis is doing in terms of exploring these fascinating dichotomies, which the main one is natural versus unnatural and everything that entails. So taboo is a huge part of this film and of her work in general and this whole idea of machines versus the body. Again, something that's that's created, something that's manufactured versus something that's natural. And the mission that the Pattinson character is even on is something that's all about sustaining life ostensibly and yet all it causes is death and destruction. So you can hear some of that discussed. I'll plug an interview with Denis that we did here on the show. Your colleague from The Next Picture Show, our friend Scott Tobias, and I talked with Claire Denis. I needed some backup for that interview. <laughs> Talking to Claire Denis, as many critics know, including one maybe in this room. Two. Two. You know it can be a harrowing experience. Yeah, I, I We survived it. haven't entirely recovered from my, <laughs> my one encounter with her. We survived it. And we talked about taboo and whether or not anything for her is off limits as an artist. It's episode 724 in our archive if you want to hear that discussion. High Life, like the aforementioned The Last Black Man in San Francisco, both available right now, streaming on most platforms. So if you're curious about either, you can check them out. That film, High Life, was the only number 10 choice of our four lists that is an outlier. So we're going to jump ahead to number nine, Tasha, your pick. 
So this is one of two films coming out in 2019 by uh, director Tom Harper. He also has a movie called The Aeronauts on Amazon Prime. It got sort of a brief awards qualifier screening uh, on the coast. I'm not sure if it, it how how widely it screened elsewhere, but it'll be on Amazon on December 20th, and uh, it's it's really pretty lovely. A sort of semi-historical, heavily fictionalized about a pair of balloonists on a scientific journey that's sort of a personal journey for both of them. It could not be more different from the film At My Number Nine, also by Tom Harper, uh, which is Wild Rose, a film about a young Scottish woman who desperately wants to be a country and Western singing star. Jesse Buckley's starring role in this film is, is so dynamic. It's so lived and it's so energetic. This is a film and a model that we've seen a lot of, including this year with Her Smell and recently with Vox Lux and before that with Ricky and the Flash. It's a movie about a woman who is trying to be a singing star and finding that it conflicts with her her dedication to motherhood, with her relationship with a child, with her conception of her future. And at the same time, it's, to me, the just hands down the best of this group of thematically similar films. Part of that is the music. The music is, I, I grew up on country and Western music, and that probably has something to do with my appreciation. But country and Western can be very samey. Uh, the energy that she puts into it, the emotion she puts into it, I think really draws out the feeling of what country music brings to the class of people who love country music, to the sense of humor, the, at the same time, the sense of isolation, uh, both of which are things that she's experiencing in her life. She's a former narcotics addict. She's just gotten out of jail. She has children to support. And yet she has this artistic dream and this amazing talent. Watching her draw out these conflicts about who she is, what she wants to be, what it means to her, and whether she can let go of a, a big dream that in some way her talent says she deserves in order to do the right thing for her family. It's a, it's a little harrowing, but it's also really beautiful and I think mm -hmm. incredibly well told. Yeah, I think I'm the only other person here who has seen Wild Rose. And just like High Life, it's a top 20 film for me. I really am a fan of this movie. It's a movie that favors realism over fairy tale. And I think it's important. You have to buy that the movie's heart is really in that, that it's all not just kind of gritty window dressing for what is – at its core, a sort of Cinderella story, any transformation that occurs here and occurs within Buckley's character has to be really grounded in reality and has to be believable. And it was for me. And you're right about Buckley. There's at least one ballad I've submitted where she's in my top five favorite performances by an actress this year. She's magnetic. She has an incredible voice. There's at least three moments in Wild Rose that will be contenders for me for music moment of the year, which is a category we love to do at our end of year rap party. So definitely encourage more people to see Wild Rose, which is also streaming right now. God, I can't platforms. wait to see it. Seriously, it's, it's, it's one of the four or five I, I cannot wait to get to. Well, that brings us to my number nine film of the year, and we have one of our special guests to help do the honors. Hey there, Film Spotting Crew. Allison Wilmore here of New York Magazine and the late but not forgotten Film Spotting SVU podcast. 
for our favorite film of the year, number one with a bullet for me was Uncut Gems. Just the most amazing mix of feeling thrilled and queasy. I think I've, I've gotten at the cinemas in 2019. Happy holidays, guys, and uh, best wishes for 2020. Thank you, Allison, for that. Is anyone going to argue with Uncut Gems as an amazing mix of thrills and queasiness? That's a great, yeah. If you want to put it simply and sort of perfectly, that's Well, Tasha maybe would disagree with use of the word amazing. I I would not disagree with any of those words. Uh, For me, the the queasiness perhaps outweighed the thrillingness, but we, we can talk about that. We can. We can. I do want to acknowledge her underappreciated pick there, The Hottest August. We haven't seen it yet. Came out, I think, November 15th in select cities, but otherwise isn't available anywhere yet. It is a movie that has this sentence as a plot synopsis or as a description, a film about climate change disguised as a portrait of collective anxiety. Kind of gives me anxiety just reading it, but (laughs) I'm definitely curious about it. So thank you for that recommendation, Allison. Uncut Gems is my number nine film of the year. Adam Sandler, of course, as Howard Ratner, a gambling addict in the Diamond District of New York City. And if you read Allison's top 10 list over at Vulture.com, she has a great line. She says, the Safties have an affection for a particularly New York brand of street-level chaos. And Uncut Gems is their purest distillation of that so far, a film that huffs the dying fumes of capitalism. And man, what a rush. I think Howard's philosophy on life can best be summed up by the poet we all know, Michael Chirito, Tom Sizemore's character from the Michael Mann movie Heat, when he says, well, you know, for me, the action is the juice. That is Howard Ratner. He's uncompromising and he's unrelenting in his quest for the perfect score. And you do kind of sense that like with any artist, attaining such perfection is probably impossible. And that's if you view him that way at all, like an artist, which is how the Safties do. They described him that way on our show here just last week. If you look at him that way, there is a certain romanticism to him where you can kind of respect his pursuit, even if you do have to recognize the damage he's doing to every single person around him. And I think the Safties do acknowledge that. They, they walk that line well. You hear them in that interview. They don't see him as irredeemable at all, which I described him that way. But as I said, I think they always do remind us of the cost of his quest. And I think about one topic I wanted to get to, and we ran out of time with Josh and Benny, was how the movie starts it throws us right into this strife and turmoil, this, this gem, this opal being discovered. And you recognize right away, someone's always being exploited. This is the way of the world. Someone's going to try to prosper from it later. Someone's going to have to be compromised in some way in order to get that big payoff. And the way it starts on that kind of global scale, and then we go down literally to the microscopic level where... I think we are inside Howard's body, right? Where he's having a colonoscopy. colonoscopy the movie, yeah. the movie comes out of his body, and that's the beginning of the film. We we start by being in this vast entangled world, and there is a visual metaphor there. I think in terms of this diamond district that he works in, and how tangled Howard's life is, and it sets the stakes for this whole film too. I love Darius Kanji's kind of anxious cinematography, the handheld approach. It's always in motion, just like Howard is. You've got that overlapping dialogue and the sound mix, which definitely adds to the intensity. And I think it probably is a career best from Sandler. I know a lot of people love him in Punch Drunk Love. He's very good in that film, but I think this is his best. And he is so perfect as Howard because he's always been kind of a low-key, single-minded type of 
character. There's been that that persona about him, even as a, a comic, I think, and you see it here in Uncut I Gems. I got $21,000 here. So you add it on to the 19 grand. It's $40,000 in all. Scrap the whole bet? Scrap the whole bet. I want to make a six-way parlay. Celtics, Sixers game. What's the line? Still plus one. Plus one. Okay, so I want the Celtics to cover. I want the Celtics halftime. I want Garnett points and rebounds. Garnett block shots. Celtics opening tip. Do you take lightning bets? Yeah, but you don't want any part of lightning bets. Fine. Come on. A thousand dollars a point. Okay, take this. And this is a gift for me. What's I this? Just, for, for just what tolerating this? me for all this time. Okay. No, no, no. I already have a Rolex. I don't need your watch. Listen, it's probably fell off a truck anyway. Listen. But well, what do you know? Gone at this. Gone at that. What do you know? I don't know. I just know. Well, I'll tell you what I know. That's the dumbest bet I ever heard of. I disagree. There's a moment. I'll just end here where he says, "Let's bet on it." It's pretty late in the film. But he says, let's bet on it. And with those words, you either throw in the towel on Howard completely and say, I'm done with him. I'm done with this movie. Or you have to kind of begrudgingly shake your head and delight in the fact that you get to watch it all play out and play out from the comfort of your movie seat where you realize that you don't have to depend on this guy or actually interact with this guy in real life at all. Well, you even see a character who's on the other side of that bet in a way. Showing admiration, begrudging admiration. I don't want to give anything away, but that's one of the, yeah, that's one of the great reaction shots in movies last year. So we saw this, Adam, in the screening room together, and we don't yeah. often get a chance to to see advanced screenings there. It's you know in a high rise building, um, a smaller theater, and I the feeling talking about the intensity and the queasiness. You basically have to come out of that room, walk down a hall to an elevator, ride down sixteen floors. Until you can get to fresh air. Yeah. And that was a long yeah. ride after Uncut Gems <laughs> because of what that movie had put me through. Um, one that I really like as well. I think I probably have it. I think it's probably top 20 for me. Hmm. Interesting. I've only seen it once. I haven't written about it yet. I'm going to write about it later this week. And I, I, there was something missing from that film that I loved in other Softy Brothers films. And I'm not sure what it is. And I'm just going to shut up. And see it again before I write about it. But I am fascinated that it, it's it's kind of a splitter, yes? Yeah, but Tasha, you're even kind of split on it, right? Where you, you have some begrudging respect for it, but also have, you but said grueling. I have begrudging respect for okay. the film, not for the character. Okay. You, you Understood. Did, you did suggest earlier that uh, there was a possibility of, of feeling respect, even if it's uh, contentious respect or, or difficult respect for Howard. Yeah. I do not, not have the, the slightest uh, bit of, of empathy or, or like or understanding for what he does. I I think I have to go back to uh, 1992 and Abel Ferrara's Bad Lieutenant mm. to find a character mm. I so thoroughly despised and so thoroughly was hoping to see his downfall uh, simply because the choices that he makes are so aggressively terrible in a way that just seemed designed to bring about his, not just his destruction, but the destruction of everyone around him. We're so used to, in cinema, seeing these films about somebody who makes their first bad choice, somebody who gets a a giant bag of money that's not theirs and realizes it could solve all their problems, but it creates more. Mm -hmm. Somebody who causes an accident or is part of an accident and tries to make choices around that that prove bad that then escalate and spiral. At the, the second you meet Howard, you realize he's been making these same bad choices for a very long time. Yep. And that he's on already on the very edge of the house of cards that he's built tumbling down. Mm. And 
I I loathed him so much. There was a point in this movie uh, where I, I I watched it at home uh, on a, on award screener. I had to pause the movie and just scream no at the TV yeah. <laughs> a dozen or so times before I could go on. So I'm glad I didn't see it at the screening room because people object to that kind of behavior. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I want to be clear too. That. I think that question of whether or not he's redeemable or whether or not you should have any respect for him is separate from whether or not he's a good character or an interesting character or Very much how so. that fits into whether or not it's an interesting and good film. I just think it's fun to discuss because you can see him in different ways. And I see him differently than the guys who wrote the movie see him. But you can't I, look away. You can't the look away. The bottom line is you can't well, look away. Well, I, I stopped you, and looked away a couple of times. The, I the needed DVD, to look but away. I was, yeah. I was fascinated. And I do wonder if part of the hesitation here um, – Tied to you too, Michael, because I had this, the ending, and again, will not spoil anything, but it did leave me a little cold. I, I had that sense of exhaustion and needing that fresh breath of air. But as I thought about how they bring the hammer down on this film, um, there is there's something missing there in the way that happens that loses whatever, and I don't even think empathy is the right word, but whatever they had as filmmakers that saw him as redeemable. Mm-hmm. The way they choose to end the movie, uh, to me, that gets lost. That element which I felt in the film of, of still following this guy and still wanting to, to, to see exactly yeah. where he takes it, the way that's shut off um, – I've been thinking about more and more. And well, there's the, a certain the one, inevitability to it, though, at the it's same more, time. It's not, it's not what happens, it's how, I, I would say, which is okay. probably all I can get into without spoiling. Yeah, that's, it's a difficult thing to navigate without giving it away. But I, I will say there is a, a degree of uplift to the way it happens that I was not expecting and that I felt was about as satisfying as a, of an ending as I possibly could have gotten from that film. Hmm. All right. Uncut Gems, my number nine. That brings us to Michael Phillips, your number eight, as we are going to hear about your number nine and Josh's number nine in part two of our roundtable. What's your pick? Part two. I love the, I love the fascinating Byzantine structure of this yeah, list. <laughs> I'm sure all of our listeners do too. My number eight is a film called Present Perfect, and it's I guess you could describe it as a found footage documentary by uh, Shengji Zhu, who was a MFA graduate of the School of the Art Institute here in Chicago. Um, and it follows two dozen Chinese citizens in their online lives as live streaming online hosts of their own shows, right? Uh, it's, it's the kind of thing we see all over the world, but in China, this is amazingly huge billion-dollar business. 422 million or so Chinese regularly share streamed films uh, every year. And, you know, it's all, you know, like like in America, the, the stuff that really pops online with these viral videos is tends toward the extreme and the eccentric, you know, boys eating live worms on air or two wrestlers dipped in wet paint, things like that. And then viewers comment in the form of, quote, bullets, and then reward the hosts with virtual gifts that you can then cash in for real money. So there's real money in this game. Anyway, this filmmaker followed two dozen of these hosts of the shows for almost a year and then collaged together the footage of just what their lives are like, construction workers, street performers, everything. And I have rarely seen a portrait of a modern society that I knew very little about sort of put together in that provocative and, and just unpredictable a way. I, I can't say enough about this doc. It's great. It was Anthony Kaufman's 
uh, hot topic, I think, for the docs. He's the programmer at the Chicago International Film Festival, where I saw it. And the film won top prize at Rotterdam, which has for decades now been a very progressive international film festival. I've never been to. I don't know Rotterdam, but if they pick this film for number one, it's okay with me. And you can't see this damn thing anywhere. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, why do you tease us like this, Michael? <laughs> I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to torment you, but I think it's good enough and it's got champions enough that it'll play a few more festivals. And I think if, at some point it's going to be streamable. So just keep an eye out for this documentary, Present Period, Perfect Period. And just you'll learn something uh, about, A, what a filmmaker can do with 800 hours of footage if you distill it the right way. And, B, just, you know, the world around your own world, which is why we go to the movies in the first place. Yeah, sounds great. It does sound great. But at this point, we do need theme music for Michael's annual obscure pick <laughs> I know. for the top ten <laughs> I thought this was going to be the year. Song. This is going to be the year he wouldn't have a choice that I'd never even heard of. And right out of the gate. Well, it, it should that be wasn't a jingle. Enough. It should it be should. a jingle because it's it's going to be something to the effect of, here is a movie that you can't see. <laughs> we got it already. That's what it Thank is. You, it, it wasn't enough that you hadn't seen it. It's that you can't see it. <laughs> that's a, that's a... Okay, we go from a movie you can't see to a movie you can. It's streaming on most platforms. It's Josh's number eight. It's a movie you've probably forgotten. It's yeah. my forgotten souvenir. This Got so much acclaim when it came out earlier this year. Very little attention at year's end. Again, maybe speaks to the strength of 2019. Um, because I think the performances, the direction, and the film itself are very deserving. Uh, maybe it's been forgotten because watching it, even while I was watching it, it did have the feeling of a fading memory in a good way. The look, the visual scheme of the film alone is almost like a, a photograph that's beginning to fade. So I can see how it might trail away in some people's minds. Writer-director Joanna Hogg made this. It's a personal tale about an English film student in the 1980s, played by Honor Swinton Byrne, who gets involved with this slightly older, mysterious man named Anthony, played by Tom Burke. A very special journey. I don't think I am. Oh, no, you don't think you are. Very normal, really. Yeah, normal. You're not normal at all. You're a freak. Thank you. How am I afraid? Your fragility. Is that a good thing? I think you know. You can tell as a viewer, I mean, talk about uh, excruciating experiences with characters you might not like. You can tell this guy is no good right away. You're not quite sure how, why, um, but the ways he, he subtly tries to control her at the very beginning, there's something else going on here. And it is, it does begin to feel like almost like watching a friend drown and you're unable to help mm. um, because we, we, we just want her to get out of this relationship. And that did frustrate a lot of viewers. Uh, not everyone loved this. Some people couldn't understand why Julie... Uh, the Swinton Byrne character stays with him. But for me, that was Hogg's brilliant trick in this film. It lives so deeply inside Julie's experience, capturing the inner rhythms of this really intensely complicated relationship that we somehow, or at least I did, somewhat understand as we disapprove. And that was just a very weird place to be in. I think the visuals echo this and emphasize it. There's a shot of Julie and Anthony in bed that's focusing on their intertwined hands. And just the way the soft focus goes in and out captures this fluctuating status of Julie's understanding of their relationship. It's not like she's completely naive here, um, but she's become enmeshed. And the way this is also woven into her growth as an artist, too, is is really fascinating. So that's the souvenir, uh, a great one that, that did stick with me throughout the year. I don't think this contradicts anything you said, but you want to talk about irredeemable dudes in the movies in 2019. There's no question. 
yeah. about this character. Except there, there is something to his story that, again, I won't spoil, but is something that becomes out of his control in a way that complicates things. Yes. You know, one, of the, things complex, he's, one of the things he's wrestling with is something that is out of his control. And uh, yeah. As different as these films are, you can look at a film like uh, The Souvenir. You can look at uh, Trey Edward Schultz's Waves, which I think is going to come up for some discussion soon. The Softy Brothers Uncut Gems. And, you know, they're all different speeds, temperaments, temperatures, everything. But, yeah. but they're all kind of requiring an audience to kind of sit there in a state of dread and anxiety <laughs> or run in a state of dread and anxiety in the case of the Softy Brothers. And there's, you know, I, I don't want to look at the money aspect of any of what we're talking about today, except to say that there's something about the way things are in 2019 that audiences are going to just essentially commercially reject that thing. They do not want to sit in that state right now. And I don't know if that's because we're sitting in a state of similar, <laughs> you know, sort of dread and anxiety, a lot of us anyway, mm-hmm. in life. And we just, our tolerance for that, even if we're open-minded, you know, consumers of art, uh, is gone way down. I don't know. Why did the souvenir find zero American interest just even to kind of make, you know, a million or two at the box office just to kind of encourage the filmmaker or the distributor to, yes, take a chance on these artists? I don't know. And I, I, I frankly think it's one of the worrying elements in an otherwise very good film year. I think people can be persuaded to experience dread and anxiety and, and pain and horror during a film if they sense a, a roller coaster like aspect to it. If mm. they sense in some level of that excitement of that adrenaline spike you get at the top of a roller coaster where some part of you thinks, oh, I'm about to die. You know, people do seek out those kinds of thrills. And I feel like Uncut Gems does have that level of thrills. It is an ad- like an adrenaline high of a dread movie. The Souvenir for me doesn't have that kind of dread at all. It, it mostly just has much less of a sense of how bad is this going to get and how many people are going to be hurt. Instead, it just it, it just felt very dreary to me. It's just sort of a, surely eventually she'll wise up. When, if ever, will that come? It's definitely more somber than Uncut Gems. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I will say I, that. I don't want to really compare the two no, in but what terms I like, of everything except that weird state of anxiety. Well, and, They're into in their own ways. And the yeah. commitment to vision. There, there's, yeah. a, there's a conviction to this is the tone I'm going to strike, and it's on you if you're not going to go with it. But, and but so the is... two do share that in that they never kind of vary from that throughout. Very different visions, very different tones, yeah. but they have that commitment to it. Well, we're going to go to your number eight, Tasha, which I think is going to get us away from the notion of toxicity. But I don't know that we're getting rid of the sense of dread or anxiety completely. But it is a film with its own tone, just like all of these other films that have been discussed so far. Yeah, Jeremy Clapin's I Lost My Body is an animated film told in part from the point of view of a severed hand crawling around Paris. And if you've seen an Adams Family movie or story, you've seen sort of what that looks like in, in terms of a hand walking around on its fingertips. But uh, this movie goes a lot deeper into that concept. When I wrote about this film, I, I found myself identifying like a lot of different films that have used the idea of a, an independently crawling severed hand from the Adams Family to the Evil Dead um, to like various horror movies, mostly trashy horror movies. But they've always kind of taken up that idea as a comic concept. It's just a little goofy uh, to watch a hand crawling around on its own. 
with I Lost My Body, which is based on a French novel um, that actually takes the the hand as a point of view character, like capable of communicating. It's a very melancholy symbol. It's a very melancholy metaphor for the separation that uh, a certain character feels. The character whose hand it is, you eventually, you begin the story by seeing the hand in the morgue um, kind of animate and, and get up and set out into the world by itself. But then you snap back in time repeatedly to the previous owner's childhood and his teenagerhood and his present day where he's very separated from the world. He's lost his family. He's staying with people who don't care for him. He has a job that doesn't engage him and he doesn't care about. He's basically adrift. And as he moves through life in the past and we move towards the, the moment where he lost his hand, the hand is traveling through the city on its own strange sort of quest. The animation is, the the colors of it are just beautiful. The The overall tone of it is slightly surreal, um, but, but rooted in a kind of realism that is hard to describe when you're talking about a severed hand movie. <laughs> but the whole thing overall just has this tone of uh, kind of a, a, a haunting tone poem. It's a very specific story, a sort of a failed romance, a sort of tale of a failed life. It's very sad in its way, but I also think it's challenging and exciting and, and beautiful. There are some action sequences in this that were some of the most breathless action sequences I saw all year, and they just involve a hand dealing with a pigeon or rats yeah. <laughs> or cars. It's a very strange strange movie, but yes. boy, you want to talk idiosyncratic. Yeah. I loved this movie. Yeah, I'm really glad I saw it. I do wish I hadn't watched it in the end of year cram session and that we'd given it a little bit more time. I think it definitely could have been a potential Golden Brick nominee, but there is definitely a cleverness to the animation and you do have to buy in early on to the notion you said POV. The hand can see, apparently. It's a hand that, <laughs> that has eyes, or at least it has a consciousness and is aware of everything around it and can navigate itself through the world. But I loved a moment in the morgue early on where we see the hand kind of go onto the floor, and then we cut to a skeleton model, and the model starts to shake a little bit. And I'm like, I don't know what this movie is going to be about. I'm thinking, what kind of horror movie is this? Like a hand just animated, this skeleton's going to come to life or something. And then you realize you you just see the hand come into the shot crawling up the skeleton model. It's just – he's just <laughs> shaking it. The hand is just shaking the model. It's just trying to get a better view of where it's going. But there is something really lovely as well about this film. I think not just in the animation but in kind of its central notion. And I bring it up here because it's going to come up – a lot throughout these shows, at least in part two for me, which is this idea in a lot of the movies this year of free will versus fate. And there's a, a sense of destiny for sure from the very first frame of this film. And the character even openly acknowledges this idea, but then says, but I'm still going to try to find ways to challenge any predestination. I'm going to go ahead and exert my free will when I can. And this idea that you can kind of do it by just doing something bold and unexpected was something I found really sweet. I think that sense that you describe of, I don't know what kind of film this is going to be, 
early on in the film is a lot of what drew me to it because I don't think you figure out what this film is until the final moments of the film. (laughs) I I think it it keeps you guessing, not in a twisty thriller kind of way, but just sort of in a, this is so unusual. It's such an unusual story told in such an unusual way that you really don't know what you're getting until you've arrived at your destination. Mm -hmm. And I, few things in cinema thrill me, like that kind of uncharted journey into, Mm -hmm. into mystery. But it is one of the films that makes that mystery worthwhile when you get to the end. It's a satisfying ending. Yeah. And unlike your off the beaten path pick, Michael, I think Tasha's is on Netflix. <laughs> it is. In all fact. right. Well, so people can watch you know, it. All the public, the public. Try that sometime, Michael. <laughs> people can see what the fuss is about. You and speaking. Okay. All right. Here's my jingle. Here is a movie you can actually see. <laughs> speaking of Netflix, we're going to get to a pick here that did not make any of our top 10 lists, but it's a favorite film of the year by one of our listeners and someone who works very closely with the show. Hey, Adam and Josh, this is your soon-to-be former production assistant, Andy Mitchell. You know, my favorite part of this job was trying to come up with unconventional ideas for top five lists, you know, like the two real parenting moments or power ranking the Chris's from Marvel movies. Anyway, with that spirit, I will say that my favorite film of 2019 so far, since I haven't seen Marriage Story or Portrait of a Lady on Fire or Star Wars 9... It's going to be Homecoming, a film by Beyonce. I believe that this is the greatest concert film since Stop Making Sense. Not only does it document an incredible pop music spectacle, it documents how these kind of spectacles can be deeply personal. This was the year that Brene Brown taught us all to embrace our vulnerability, and Beyonce and her Bayhive really showed how doing so can lead to a lot of uplift and a lot of joy. Um, Yeah, it's probably not as refined as Parasite or Knives Out. It certainly moved me, though, as much as The Last Black Man in San Francisco. And since you're probably going to talk about all those movies anyway, let's show some love to Homecoming, a film by Beyonce, which once again proves that Beyonce makes great cinema uh, as long as she's doing something uh, music-related. Sorry to the Lion King audience. Thanks again. Thanks to Andy, who was a fantastic production assistant here on Film Spotting for over a year. I didn't realize just how good he was. I had forgotten, Josh, that not only did he come up with the power ranking the Chris's top five, which was great fun. That was great. He came up with the two real parenting moments, which is one of my favorite top fives in the show's history. Yeah, we should put his name on that page maybe somewhere. Yeah. Conceived by Give Andy him Mitchell. the credit for that. Homecoming is on Netflix. Bold statement there saying it's the greatest concert film since Stop Making Sense. I, I mean, it's in my top 25 for 2019. I'll give it that. And for me, it was, you know, seeing those songs perform live is is electric in itself. But really, it was the performance art aspect of this concert documentary that I really went for. Just the fact that they shot this over two nights and the the background performers were completely, basically, they were all in yellow one night and all in pink another night. And these got edited together. So it was this kaleidoscopic mm-hmm. effect as you're watching it, even even one song kind of being diced up that way. Mm. So there were just a lot of aesthetic elements on top of the musical experience that that made Homecoming really great. That brings us to my number seven pick, and it is Alex Ross Perry's Her Smell. Alex Ross Perry also made Queen of Earth and Listen Up Philip with the star of this movie, Elizabeth Moss. And I didn't mean for us to keep going back to uncut gems here. But when I saw these films back to back here on my list, it did 
make me think about some of the connections. Only here we're talking about an actual artist, Becky something, this kind of fading pop punk singer. But she is, like Howard, self-destructive. There's a similar manic energy to her. She can only seem to function within total chaos. And I think Her Smell and Uncut Gems are the only two movies, not just this year, but in the history of the show, where I ever use the word cacophony in the notes, but they apply this, <laughs> this kind of soundscape, right? And you get it in terms of what Perry was going for here, working with Keegan DeWitt on the score. I read somewhere that he wanted it to induce panic attacks. That's what he told his composer. Wow. Come up with something that will induce panic attacks. Actually suing you, right? Or is that somebody else? I'm suing. They'll see you in court. Judge, Your Honor, is it a crime in this country to prefer the witching hour? I was born with an internal clock. A doctor left it inside me. <laughs> I think he he came pretty darn close to that. You have Sean Price Williams' camera work, which is at times handheld. Other times there's a steady cam that's tracking Becky backstage. She is just always on the hunt to take someone down with her overwhelming self-loathing. And I watched it. We watched it, Josh, coming off our Cassavetes marathon. Yep. We saw a lot of the same boldness and rawness in Moss as we did in Jenna Rollins, especially in A Woman Under the Influence. I think Rollins is one of our greatest actresses. I think Elizabeth Moss is one of our best actresses right now. And she's a woman as Becky here, who's under a lot of influences for most of the movie. I think this is also a film that really is about addiction. I love the theatrical kind of approach that Alex Ross Perry takes where you got kind of these long acts that play out and each character just gets to exist in that physical and psychological space. Sometimes it's another movie where we want to escape and we want to get away from her, but we are trapped in the space with her. And like your number nine, Tasha Wild Rose, the music has to work. And I think the songs here have the appropriate bite but they're incredibly catchy. They feel like something, like a band, like this band's supposed to be something she could perform that they would have been known for, the kind of tunes that they would have had some notoriety for and maybe even been playing some arenas back in their prime. And there is definitely a music moment in this film that involves Becky with her child that will be a contender for best music moment. I'll just leave it at that because I do not want to spoil it. Her Smell is out now and is streaming everywhere. I, I confess it was I was almost distracted during that moment by thinking about the the top musical moments of the year and and how this had to be uh, very high up it has on to that be, potential right? list. Well, this movie, I this was one of my catch-up movies. I watched this for the first time last night as we're recording this, and the emotions of it are still a little raw for me. I think it suffers a little in my eyes from being so similar in so many ways to Wild Rose and my feeling that Wild Rose addresses many of these things in, in better ways. But the emotions of this movie are so fraught. It is yet another contender. Uh, we Maybe we should have just done a top 10 list for this year of anxiety-inducing movies about horrible people yes. and, and the people that they harm. <laughs> I feel like I, I am, I'm curious where your sympathies lay in this movie, Adam, because 
I felt so little sympathy for Becky in her just riotous wave of self-destruction because I was sympathizing so much for the people around her. Mm -hmm. But I feel like this movie is so well constructed in the way it builds the sense that that all these people around her, her, her ex, who's the father of her child, her mother, her former bandmates, these young up-and-comers who admire her, all of these people feel an obligation to her. And many of them feel an obligation because she has been financially supporting mm -hmm. them. They have been living off of her and her talent and her her fame and her success. And so no matter how harmful and hurtful she gets, they have that that understanding, I owe her this. I I can't help her. You see a great, great deal throughout this film of them standing around helplessly watching as she does various terrible things. They know they can't help, but they also often feel that they can't leave. Right. And the tension of that, I felt, really gave this movie a, an edge that a lot of these movies don't have. No, the, I agree. By the time that film gets to its very different last third, mm -hmm. where you get a whole, an entirely different mood and rhythm, and, and then, you know, in less her hands with the kind of redemptive coda that I think you could describe this as would have really seemed a little pad or something like that. But Moss is such a good actress. She always plays against the grain, you know, and she never takes the easy choice whether she's playing in train wreck mode or in this case of this character in this film, her smell, you know, in the last half hour or so, you know, it's just a very different place in this woman's life. Mm -hmm. And I don't know, it, it, it's on, on paper, it's a little schematic. Uh, as cinema, it really it really took me there. And I, I struggled a little bit with some of the earlier stuff in that it just feels like, okay, how are they going to continue to vary this idea to, to kind of complicate this one Mm, sort of downward spiral in, in different ways, you know. Well enough, I thought, but then, then, but something about that ending, you know, really sold me. And yeah, uh, but Perry's, oh, Perry's ending, great. Yeah. You know, this Perry. is a film that I don't think could have sustained that directness, consistency of vision that we talked about with Uncut Gems, or that I felt the souvenir had. Even watching her smell while I was appreciating what it was capturing in that first half or two thirds. I had the same thought, like, is this going to be able to maintain this? Is this going to run out of steam in some way? And then when it makes that turn, I think it is a lot about Moss's performance, Michael. I think it's the way she is almost, I think of that scene where it's a morning tea routine we see with her post rehab. And she's almost like another creature. Yet Moss is good enough to show you this is the same person. And mm, I guess yeah. it comes maybe back to your sympathy question, Tasha. Moss is good enough to show us that that creature we get to is somewhere there in the beginning as well, even though she might be, you know, exploiting some of those relationships and as horrible as she is to live with. We get a sense of that somehow early. We see it fully later on. And then Perry is also smart enough to complicate everything in the final moments, yeah. um, which I think is one of the one of the great perplexing, good perplexing endings of the year. Yeah. Speaking oh, really? to what you said, Josh thinks there's a little bit more ambiguity than maybe the rest of us do to the end of the film. And I think it is really intriguing to discuss. Oh, maybe not here. I, yeah, I don't want to spoil I don't, anything. I don't want to spoil anything, but I will say I, I thought her final line in the movie provided an immense clarity that, that recast everything that had happened in the film in a different light that made me appreciate it more. I didn't feel there was any ambiguity. I, I felt like that was, it was uh, the, the nail hitting home in a way that just held the whole piece together. I, yeah, that's how I, I, I didn't love anything in the movie as much as I love that final line. Yeah, well, I, I 
don't know if this is the final line, but I think of the lyric she sings, which is, I don't want to quit. I just want to be in control of it. Is that what you're, is that what you're thinking? No, oh, okay. I, I'm thinking that's the, the actual that kind thing of, she says. Yeah. It's the last thing she says in the movie. Going back to like just the music for me, and I think it was that line that held a lot of, a lot of power and suggestion and the tension that that captures is sort of the tension of, um, that she's exploring as an artist and as a famous person. Is, is it possible to do that? Is it possible to keep this going and still be in control? And that's what she seems to be wrestling mm. with. We go from her smell to Michael's number seven film of 2019, which is the only film miraculously other than the one that I'd never even heard of that I didn't, you guys are, I didn't have a chance to make time when, when for. This, when this excellent new filmmaker, straight out of the you know school, of the Institute is, yeah. t- is just taking just a lot of a lot of. Uh, we can't wait un- to see the movie. Oh no, no, you we can, can't. Wait. You're going to have to wait. We will have to wait. <laughs> I mean, you. it is not available. <laughs> Whatever you'll let us. But this movie, this one, this one, we do have screeners. This movie, of. your number seven. Not only do we have screeners of, but it's still playing in some select cities. You can see it on the big screen. It is. Trey Edward Schultz's film Waves. Waves, yeah, yeah. I, Tell I, us about it. I man, I really, I really like it. It's his third feature. You know, it comes it comes on the heels of uh, Cretia, which I know we, um, you know, you've, you've talked to the filmmaker about that. And it comes at night. Remarkable first film, and it comes at night. A more problematic, but still pretty damn interesting mm-hmm. uh, film that was misadvertised uh, as as a kind of a flat out horror film, which it, it, it just most assuredly was not. And this film, it was made, and I'm sure he told you this if you if you talked to him. This this film was made. This third one was made, sort of in this um, kind of a hangover period for him, just sort of psychically, in that uh, he was d- disappointed and a little bit down about the reception to It Comes at Night, and he just wanted to kind of shoot a movie in South Florida, where you know an area he knows uh, very well. But uh, I think true to form, he told a very he tells a very very harsh, grim, eloquent story of how one family can absolutely unravel, uh, uh, you know, just through a series of what seem to be kind of random events, but they're all too common. It's just, it's, a, it's an African-American family. Uh, there's, a, there's a couple of teenage kids and the, the young boy, Tyler, played by Kelvin Harrison Jr., is a high school wrestler. And, you know, he seems to have a lot going in his life. He's got a, he's got a girlfriend. He's got a good circle of friends, a supportive family, a very demanding father, played by Sterling K. Brown. But, you know, he is basically supported and believed in. And then everything, one by one, the dominoes start falling in the first half of this film. Um, you know, there's addiction issues. Uh, his girlfriend skips a period. Uh, there's, there, everything gets a little more intensely uh, challenging for this young boy, and then tragedy strikes. I don't really want to give it away because the, the film has not gotten an audience really yet. It may never get a big audience, but uh, the 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 way these events kind of conspire against this guy, combined with the filmmaking, which is this kinetic, swirling, crazy, high velocity filmmaking. It's if you're if you're gripped by this film at all, you are really shaken by it, I think. And then at the midway point, you think, where the hell is it going to go now? And I don't want to say why you know you, it comes to that. But the second half of Waves simply hands off the story from one child in this family to the sister. Hmm. 
And it tells, uh, you know, related, but in almost an entirely different news story. And it, it always comes back to this, how these tenuous and very fragile family ties can be broken or remade over time. But it takes real effort, uh, you know, to kind of like, uh, to kind of grapple with controlling your fate, you know. And it's, I don't know, I, I really I really found this film twice through a really rattling experience. And it's not just, you know, the Softy brothers are after a very different kind of high-velocity <laughs> filmmaking. But this, I think Schultz, even when he's grasping at certain dramatic ideas or not everything is maybe equally convincing and it's a little bit of a hammering quality, but uh, he is a very, he just feels his story points and his characters very deeply. And I, I, I just I just find this kind of filmmaking, if we can't support an indie filmmaker like this, I don't yeah. know who the hell we're supporting. I'm trying to give you the tools to succeed in this world. It's not easy out there. Everything I do is for you. Everything. I know you're under a lot of pressure right now, but I'm just getting really scared. But you'll have this place to call home. Everything's gonna be okay, all right? Always. We're in this together. Well, I hope to support Trey Edward Schultz and see this movie very soon. Unfortunately, didn't happen for the rest of us before this taping, but glad to see it on your list, Michael, at number seven. Josh, your number seven is another film that is still lingering in some theaters if people haven't had a chance to see it yet. And that's where they should see it. I count this among my favorite theater-going experiences of the year. We've already talked about titles that are available on streaming, um, and that's great for access. Um, but yeah, I think back on my movie year, and I do like to think about those times I got to a theater and had fun with a crowd. Jojo Rabbit was definitely one of those packed house. And even coming out of it, you know, I think when I raved about this movie on the show maybe a month or so ago, Adam, I, I mentioned my hesitance that Jojo Rabbit might not age well, recognizing that even in the moment. But right now, putting together the top 10 list, it's still working just fine for me. So I do have it at number seven. I just think it's so of our moment. It's for me. For me, it was this comic release valve. For the ways that I feel politically frustrated, I want a movie that channels my personal anger but also doesn't give into it. And Jojo Rabbit does that for me. I think that's the trick the movie manages. It has a mixture of a mockery of tribalist and nationalist thinking, but also hope that hearts can be turned away from that sort of thinking. And I also really do think that the movie takes the darkness of Nazi Germany seriously. Uh, it's even there in YTD's mostly cartoonish performance as Hitler, but there are one or two moments where he suddenly switches into that historical vitriolic dictator who is captured in footage that we've seen, news footage, and that just kind of suddenly shocks you out of any sort of blitheness that you may have fallen into because of the comedy that the movie also entails. Poor Jojo. What's wrong, little man? Hi, Adolf. Want to tell me about that rabbit incident? What was all that about? They wanted me to kill it. I'm sorry. I couldn't. Don't worry about it. I couldn't care less. But now they call me a scared rabbit. Let them say whatever they want. People used to say a lot of nasty things about me. Oh, this guy's a lunatic. Oh, look at that psycho. He's going to get us all killed. Last year at this time, 
a lot of us, I think, were praising. Some of us were praising Spike Lee's Black Klansman. I know it was on my top 10 list. And I do think Jojo Rabbit does something similar to that movie, mm-hmm. uh, reexamining past tragedy to comment on contemporary insanity and doing it with this disarming mixture of darkness and humor. I mean, Black Klansman, a lot of it played as a um, buddy cop episode uh, and did that well. So I think there's something similar going on here. Didn't hit all audiences that way, but the one I sat with, it felt really cathartic. Hmm. Hmm. Who else? Who else liked it here? I liked it, but not nearly as much as Josh. Yeah, Tasha, did you see? It? I was pretty divided on it. This is my most discussed film of the year. We devoted a couple of episodes to it on the next picture show, comparing it with Mel Brooks, the producers. Um, I spent a bunch of time on the one A podcast at NPR talking about it and specifically about the topic of whether it's basically whether it's okay to laugh at Hitler, whether Mm. it's okay to sympathize with Nazis and and portray them as as human beings, whether it's okay to give them redemption arcs, like all of these controversies that kind of swirled around the film. And to some degree, I felt maybe distracted from what it actually is, which to my mind is kind of a, a failed comedy that turns into a very programmatic like very uh, sentimental kind of treacly child love story. I really, really loved the first third of this movie, which kind of had a Wes Anderson uh, comedy bent. And then the more it moved away from that into the relationship between the, the two young people and his control over her and his egregiously exaggerated uh, comedy racism, the less I connected with it. Uh, that's, yeah, I'm with you on that. I, I just, the, I've only seen it once uh, and I don't know. I just, I just found like that, that kind of comedy to me can't turn serious successfully. And the film has to, you know, it has to, and it does. And, you know, he's, he's a good enough director and a performer to know what this material demands and what sort of comedy you don't want with this. But I'll tell you, man, by the end, I was just kind of having a life is beautiful headache and, mm-hmm. you know, and, and that's, and yeah, of course, let's he, the comparison and people can't, you know, you know, I work with plenty of folks <laughs> who, you know, wake up thinking about and crying over life is beautiful all over again every day of their lives. They just, they're so wiped out by the combination of, of, of clowning and utter, you know, utter tragic pathos. And I don't buy a word of it. Yeah. yeah I think it's a very different film than life is beautiful. I mean, that's, it's you know, better for film. many, for many reasons, yeah. it's, it's the better, place it's to go. That, yeah. um, but even in, in setting, I mean, the setting alone is so different that um, not all the same concerns necessarily apply, but I just keep going going to the actual quote unquote jokes that are in it and seeing how layered and thoughtful they are. And and one of them that I talked about on the show was that poster gag where the boy is sent to put up posters of Hitler's face, propaganda posters, and he has to rub them on the post back and forth on the wall to get them to stick. And each time it's YTD's face, his hand goes by, it's a different goofy face. That's just funny. That's just a gag. But then once again, the last time his hand goes by, it's Hitler's actual face drawn from a propaganda poster. Mm. Um, And there's even the opening, the brilliant opening of the Beatles singing in German. And it's combining the sort of pop fanaticism of Beatlemania with this fanaticism that had taken over this country. And I think there's a lot of thoughtfulness and cleverness and care and craft that goes into it's just not making jokes about Hitler. I mean it's it's a lot more complicated yeah, no, than that. When you when you look at that. what's actually going on. Yeah. It's a stir- yeah. stirring defense, Josh. Well thank you. Stirring well, defense. And so I, mean, I agree with you on the opening, which we talked about on the show, I think is great. And there are other transcendent moments. The moment where Scarlett Johansson playing the young protagonist's mother 
puts on a, a smudge of, of soot as a fake mustache Love yeah. that in scene. order to play her husband for her young son in order to demonstrate what it would be like to have his father at home is so packed with nuance because on one level she is actually trying to be both parents for a child who's lost his father on one level she's accusing her husband of abandoning them she's accusing him of being a bad father in various ways on another level she's missing him and she's expressing that emotionally in front of her son who maybe doesn't need to see that on another level it's it's comedic because she's doing it as a, mm-hmm. a big bright thing like that sequence is so beautifully assembled and, and conceptualized and put together and I wanted more of that the movie it keeps getting compared to Life is Beautiful but for me it went much more in the direction of The Book Thief or The Boy in the Striped Pajamas yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, pajamas, yeah. two different movies about uh, you know a young German befriending a young Jewish child and about the relationship between them in a way that just felt very sentimental and and overstated to me. If the entire movie had lived either in the big bright comedy wing or in the level of clever, creative, complicated nuance of that that fake father scene. I could have dealt with it. But as soon as it started pushing into into pathos, it just felt very false to me. Yeah, I thought the balance it struck was mostly effective. Obviously I did like the movie and that scene that you mentioned, we talked about it during our review, though we were kind of dancing around a little bit for people who hadn't seen it. But the fake father scene with the soot on her face, that's the scene of the movie because it does contain all of those kind of layered emotions at once. It's not just that she's missing her husband and she is expressing that kind of sense of forlorn, but also she's angry. She's mad at Jojo in that moment, as I recall. And you see that rage come through in her. And then you see the the flip where then she becomes the mother who now is very sensitive to her son. And it's touching in that regard, too. And of course, how it all culminates with them together. That that I think is the movie at its finest. And maybe the rest of the film doesn't completely match that scene. But that's definitely a standout. I will say that I think that in terms of the pathos, it works as well as it does largely because of Thomas and McKinsey and her performance as the She's girl so good, yeah. who is being hidden in the attic. And it's a case where no matter how absurd it all gets, the stakes of this, of what's happening around her and what could happen to her, that's always in her eyes. Mm-hmm. You see it in every frame, every time you look at Thomas and McKinsey. In terms of performances too, Roman Griffin Davis, who plays Jojo, I loved. And... We recently talked about The Phantom Menace on the show, and we got into Jake Lloyd's performance, part of our 9 from 99 series. Which not even I could defend. No, you couldn't. And all I could think about watching The Phantom Menace genuinely was how much better the movie could have been, I suppose, all its other issues, but how much better it could have been if an actor like Roman Griffin Davis was playing young Anakin Skywalker, someone with that emotional range, that comedic timing, that would have been nice. You think he the could have sold, sold Yippee? Yippee. Yippee. Nice. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. I'm with you. He could sell, that I'm kid could you. sell Yippee <laughs> easily. Well, you know, speaking of uh, amazing performances in Jojo Rabbit, I feel like we ought to at least acknowledge Stephen Merchant, who is uh, also a very talented actor and kind of a, a comic genius. We've seen do a lot of hilarious roles. And here he's terrifying. He is. And then he's suddenly funny. It's and that pr- seems sort of like balance. a little flip. Yeah, the yes. Heil scene. Yeah, yeah. yeah the where, where scene. Again, Adam, to, to the real stakes that are at play in that scene, if they are caught, but also 
there's a good gag going on a, at the same a time. Really mm-hmm. ridiculous slapsticky Taika Waititi, yeah. classic comedy moment, but at the same time, a, a pretty frightening and unnerving performance at the same time. Okay, well, we are somehow through part one of part one. <laughs> <laughs> we have part one of ten. Yeah, of part we one. Have, we have a lot more movies to discuss <laughs> here on our end of year roundtable. And to take us out of this segment, we're going to hear a pick for best film of the year from a longtime film spotting listener. Jim Polini and his pick will transition us nicely into one of the best scores of the year. Here's Jim Polini. Hello, Adam and Josh. This is Jim Polini from Bethpage, New York, weighing in with my best of 2019 pick, which is Noah Baumbach's Marriage Story. You know, in most films that focus on the end of a relationship, you tend to get a buildup of tensions that will more times than not result in like an emotional gut punch scene. Think of the crumbling house scene in Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind or the courtroom scenes in Kramer versus Kramer. But in, in Marriage Story, Bombach is like throwing these emotional haymakers from the beginning of the film as the couple deals with visitation schedules, establishing residency, picking attorneys, in-law awkwardness and financial pressures, The screenplay really tightly controls the tone as the couple moves through these kind of roller coaster of emotional scenarios. And most impressive of all is how Bombach demonstrates a real deep understanding of how the anger residing in these broken hearts is the true source of the pain. And both actors really deliver pitch perfect performances in support and understanding of that premise. I think this is Bombach's most accomplished film, and it is one of the best of the year. Thanks again for a great show, guys. Keep up the good work. Film spotting, it's Kat Sullivan dialing in from Chicago to share my favorite film of 2019, which I was fortunate enough to catch at the Chicago International Film Festival this year. A lot of movies came close, but none burned quite as brightly as Portrait of a Lady on Fire, directed by Celine Chiama. Put simply, it's everything I love in a movie. It's got intimacy, it's proximity to art, it's grounded and layered women, plus a beautiful beachside backdrop. It's a cinematic magnet. There's only so much I can say that hasn't already been said about its perspective on art and the artist and how the two can blur and shift, its deliberate and decadent embrace of the lesbian identities of its leads, and its near-perfect portrayal of what it means to yearn and to express that yearning, to see and be truly seen. It's rich, singular, and sumptuous, and I'll be recommending it to everyone I know when it's released wide in February of next year. Thanks, guys. We previously heard from our outgoing production assistant here on the show, Andy Mitchell, his pick for favorite film of the year, Beyonce's Homecoming. I thought it was only fitting that we heard from the incoming production assistant. 
here on Film Spotting. Kat Sullivan in Chicago, showing that she has very good taste in cinema. I like her already. Yeah. For reasons we'll get to. Yeah. That choice, Portrait of a Lady on Fire. One that's going to get discussed in a little bit more detail as we make it through these two episodes. Before we jump back into our countdown, did want to take a moment to highlight, again, our event that we are looking forward to in February. Probably the first time Tasha or Michael are hearing about it, but we are planning to celebrate 15 years of film spotting mm. next year, and we're going to commemorate it with a tour We haven't released all of the details yet, but it's going to start in our home city. It has to start in Chicago, February 8th, Saturday night at the Music Box Theater. So same site as our 500th episode. Oh, fantastic. We're going to do it at the Great Music Box, and we're going to screen a movie. We think we know what movie we're screening, but I'm not going to say it yet. And we'll have a discussion, and we'll mingle with listeners and maybe do a Q&A. Hopefully, Tasha, Michael, other friends of film spotting over 15 years will be able to be part of it. We can't wait. Oh, that's thrilling. Thrilling. I don't know. Having just watched her smell, I have a very different view of touring. <laughs> and I don't know whether I'm looking forward more to the the drugs and the eventual breakdown or looking forward to standing around very concerned as you guys do drugs and, and horribly break down. Uh-huh. Michael well, and I can just stand there and look helpless yet concerned. Maybe now you'll understand why I have so much sympathy for <laughs> Becky something. Maybe she's well, inside I, of me. I also look forward to you learning to apply that much eyeliner at all times. I can't wait. From what I understand, we're going to be taking, it's going to be me, Adam, and Sam in my 2004 Honda CRV, <laughs> just hitting the road. Yeah. Hopefully our hotels, I mean, it, it gets a little cramped in there. Are we getting hotels or are we just going to pull motels. over and motels? motels. Okay. We don't have a big budget. Okay. You know, I did see we've been invited to take this tour to Honolulu. I did see that. I don't, I know don't where, think your van's going to get there. I, I don't know how that works with our <laughs> well, transportation you, budget. But. Even, even if you get it there, the gas is too expensive. <laughs> really? <laughs> no, we definitely don't have the budget for that. So we will release more details about this February 8th event at the Music Box in the coming weeks. Tickets will go on sale soon. So just keep an eye out for that. And we always encourage you to go to filmspotting.net slash events to see information about any upcoming events, including movie passes we love to give away for advanced screenings here in the city. Let's get back into our countdown. We've heard some number 10s, some number 9s, some 8s, some 7s, and we are actually going to hear all four of our number six choices for movie of the year. We're going to start with you, Tasha. My number six of the year was a documentary directed by Penny Lane called Hail Satan. I'm not sure I had a more fun time at the theater this year than this movie. And yet it's been very difficult to recommend it to people. It's a documentary specifically about the rise of an organization called the Satanic Temple. And a lot of people hearing that are very put off by it. People may be sort of tangentially or uh, like ephemerally aware of the Satanic Temple from human interest news pieces, the kind of thing that that crop up at the bottom of the hour on local news about this group showing up in costumes to chant Hail Satan in front of uh, city capitals, in front of uh, various companies or organizations. They're maybe a little bit political organization, a little bit performance art troupe, uh, a little bit just protest league, and a little bit of anti-religion organization. They're kind of chaotic. Uh, They're 
very, very loud and funny and just just well humored. And they kind of grew out of a, a protest movement against the rise of religious culture, conservative religious culture in the United States. Penny Lane tracks from one of their, their very first political protests to how the group organized and grew humongously over the course of just a couple of years how they've built a reputation around these big performance arty stunts, but how there's underneath a very bedrock, interesting philosophy that they take specifically against how religion is coming to dominate um, American culture and particularly American politics. So they organize these stunts that are kind of designed to force Satanism into the same sort of areas where Christianity is slipping in under the rubric of freedom of religion. And what they expose over and over and over is that when certain groups pass laws touting freedom of religion, what they mean is freedom to practice Christianity in the way a very small subset of people think it should be practiced. So when they bring Satanism into school and have, uh, you know, color with Satan night for, for children, they rouse the anger of a very specific group of people. And that's what they're out to do. So the whole documentary goes back and forth between talking to some of the individuals involved and observing some of these stunts as they happen, observing some of the very telling emotional reactions that their actions get, and then having them talk about why they're doing it. To some degree, they're a trolling organization. And they admit it outright. Uh, most of them, when talked to, don't believe that Satan is an actual entity. They don't worship him as a, a an actual spiritual being in the world. He's a representation of defiance. And that's the sort of defiance that they embrace. If there's anything that anti-choice protesters have been good at, it's the spectacle. We wanted to create a context where we can start to understand that people who are protesting outside of clinics are doing something that's somewhat perverse and disturbing. So anyways, that was where our starting point was, is how do we do this? How do we match them? And then it was um, a lot of brainstorming and spitballing and conversation until somebody made a joke about how they fetishize the fetus, how it becomes this kind of object that is is revered in a way that seems somewhat unnatural. And, um, you know, we, we landed on fetish babies, adult babies. <laughs> One of the things that I love most about this movie is, among other things, it tracks a schism that happens in the Satanic Temple because you get a whole bunch of uh, iconoclasts together who don't like organization and embrace different forms of political anarchy. Of course, you're going to have some form of internal political anarchy. So the film explores that, the personalities behind the organization, all of the, I would say, good that they've accomplished under this kind of strange rubric of uh, Satan worshiping. And it makes you aware of a lot of things uh, that are going on in, in politics that you may have missed on a, on a state and local level particularly. But it also just addresses it with such an enlightening and enlivening humor, a kind of humor that has almost left political discussions at this point. So you mentioned the the discord among them, which it's very amusing when it takes, it's almost as soon as organizational systems start being put on this group, things are not going to work, right? But there is a true believer among them who is one of the most fascinating film figures of 2019, and that's Jex Blackmore. Mm -hmm. I think she's the head of the Detroit chapter. Does that sound right? That sounds right. And she actually gets kicked out um, because... She, she's too extreme. 
essentially for the satanic temple. Uh, and she, though, has some of the most coherent theology. You talk about how some of the people in this group are, you know, they, they don't really care about any sort of beliefs. It's more as a political action is, is why they're invested in it. And she's just fascinating when she starts talking about some of her the personal theology that she believes in that's behind this. I think maybe that's more like what I was kind of expecting and looking for in the doc than some of the political elements. But again, that may be because I'm more familiar with those already. So I think for someone who who is completely unfamiliar with this group and wants to learn exactly what they were up to, Hail Satan definitely will give you that. Yeah, this is the doc that made us all realize we're actually all Satanists. <laughs> <laughs> it's a tough theology, if you want to use that term, to argue with. And you mentioned, I think, what is the key scene in the movie for me, which is that after school with Satan program, the coloring or whatever. And you recognize in that scene because one parent gets so outraged, right, and is just letting them have it. You realize that they want to actually do some good. There's a trolling aspect. They want to also do some good. This is probably a good program. It's the mere fact that Satan is in the title that is driving this woman crazy. And they have to recognize that if they just change the name, they could be in these schools and be affecting change and be running this program. But that is the point. Mm -hmm. The point of it all ultimately is there is that performance art aspect to it. They could change their name to something harmless. They could even make it an acronym of Satan if they wanted and probably fool everyone. But it's about the provocation. It's about the disruption. They have to disrupt the status quo. And if that means calling it something that offends people, they're going to do that. It has to make them think. It has to make them uncomfortable. And to some degree, it is all about public displays. And having the Satan tie-in gets them media attention that they wouldn't get otherwise because it's so controversial, because it's so colorful. So part of uh, the story is told through local media outlets in the stories that they run, uh, which is perpetually interesting. Sadly, if they used an anagram or a different name, they wouldn't be able to have the no nomenclature harmony of their program Menstruating with Satan, which is an actual program that they have, uh, which I believe helped get uh, feminine hygiene supplies to women in prison. This is the kind of thing that they do. Uh, you know, a good cause, yes. a, a progressive ideal, and at the same time, just a, a pretty crass joke just for the fun of it. Yeah. Hail Satan is available on most streaming platforms. And we've got another doc here. Michael Phillips, your number six. It's not fun, like Hail Satan. No, it's not. Which is a lot of fun. But, uh, but maybe even more provocative. No, it is, and it's, it's really good. It's just a documentary, as you say, called One Child Nation from filmmaker Nanfu Wang. And she and her brother grew up in uh, the province known as Jiangxi in China. And this was during the period where China's uh, population control methods, which were implemented in 1979 and ran about 35 years, led to just, you know, all these, just, just a series of forced sterilizations and, and just a really grim kind of human rights record. And this has been now changed in recent years to a two-child policy, but Wang wanted to go back to her ancestral village and really just kind of interview all kinds of folks that were immediately and profoundly affected by this policy. Uh, it's It's got a little bit of the element that you got in Josh Oppenheimer's documentaries, The Act of Killing and the Look of Silence, where a filmmaker as interrogator is going back into you know, his her own life in the past and just really wanting to confront uh, certain figures from their home village uh, that, that, kind of, that kind of, you know, sort of serve as emblems of this 
governmental policy. And uh, it's it's a really riveting kind of personal odyssey, I think. And, and is it also, it's a film that gets an amazing amount done in under 90 minutes. Yeah. It's, a, it's got that personal sort of, you know, first-person POV, uh, worn very lightly, though, and also just a really great variety of kind of gripping revelations on camera where you have all these different camera subjects back in this village who just simply are very clearly very nervous about being interviewed and being confronted by with what they did in many cases. Um, I don't know. I, I really... I really think that uh, when you when you when you roll in what she got on camera back in China, and also just the stories of a lot of the American parents who are just trying to find out more about the kids who are now part of their lives, yeah, it's it's an amazingly tightly packed doc and. Uh, she's a real filmmaker. So, yeah, that's my number six. I agree. It was one of the last movies I watched in preparation for this show, and I'm really glad I did. I didn't think about Oppenheimer, but you're so right, of course, the connections to the act of killing and look of silence in terms of movies, filmmakers making people confront horror, the horror of their own actions, and really exposing their sense of denial and their hypocrisy in a lot of ways as well. There's a slight spoiler here for our show. There's a movie that's going to come up in part two about a man who was so opposed to what his country's leaders were requiring of him to do that he was willing to pay the ultimate sacrifice if it came to it, wouldn't compromise his beliefs because it's his government's policy. And he had the sense that any capitulation was total capitulation. And you watch One Child Nation. I watched it right after watching that movie. Wow. And if there's anybody out there looking for a political science or philosophy (laughs) essay, a compare-contrast that Mm. will write itself – It's the movie you're going to hear about later and One Child Nation because in this one you hear the same refrain over and over again. And Wong really puts a a point on it at the end, which is I had no choice. Everybody's saying I had no choice. I had no choice. Policy is policy. And the movie makes you at least question whether or not they truly didn't have any choice. And there's a scene early in the movie where you're hearing – Wong is hearing her own mother describe helping to abandon a baby that died two days later. And she's recounting it as if it's just a way of life. It's just a matter of course. Imagine sitting across from your mother, your own mother, hearing her tell that story. Describing your cousin, essentially, would be obviously There's the one so much of who her died. Fa- her, so much of her family ends up on camera in on this camera. film. And it's, uh, uh, it, it's one, of the, one of the figures who's not a family member, but there's a woman who actually delivered the filmmaker herself. Yes. Delivered her birth, and she, she's talking about the estimated 50,000 abortions and sterilizations she performed in her 25-year career as a midwife. And then to your point, mm-hmm. yeah, she says, the quote that I really, the, I, the first quote I wrote down when I reviewed it, my hands trembled doing it, she says at one point, but I had no choice. I had no choice. But she's also the one, the only one in the film really we see who has a true sense of regret and is trying to atone for it. And so that's, that's a fascinating dichotomy as well with other characters you see in, I should say people you see in this documentary. Highly recommend yep. One Child Nation. And we're going to continue the documentary love here as we get to another guest voicemail. This is Alyssa Wilkinson from Vox.com. I ran with a tie this year for my favorite films, which were Parasite and Marriage Story. I just couldn't pick between them. They're both very different, but they both show two directors who are really experienced working at the top of their game, and I would watch either of them over and over and over again, and plan to. But I also would recommend, for people who haven't seen it yet, the best documentary of the year, which was The Hottest August. 
It's a very cinematic documentary in which the director, Brett Story, went out into New York during the month of August 2017 and asked people about their aspirations and hopes and fears for the future. And it turns into a film that's kind of about climate change without ever mentioning climate change and also kind of just about the way that our anxieties and the way we live today are shaping how we think about the future. It's also very entertaining, beautifully shot, and kind of plays like science fiction. So the hottest August is not to be missed. Happy holidays to everyone. Do you have any worries about the future? Oh. What future? I'm greatly concerned about the planet, which is falling apart. Even before tragedy happened in my own life, I had made that choice to just be ready and prepared for things. I grew up here, my mother grew up here. Nothing ever happened like this. It's a shame. It's a shame. We're going to go away from documentary now for my number six film, and it's James Gray's Ad Astra, one of those movies that I definitely have in mind when I say, I can't believe it's in my six through 10 and not my one through five. And I think I'm a little bit of an outlier among this group here in terms of my affection for this movie, but it's Apocalypse Now in Space. What's What could be wrong with Apocalypse Now in Space? Apocalypse Now has already been made, and it was a pretty good movie. Oh, okay. Tough to argue with that, gotcha. <laughs> It's Apocalypse Now in Space right down even to that pesky voiceover that bugged a lot of viewers, but that mostly, mostly worked for me as an expression of the main character, this astronaut, Roy McBride, played by Brad Pitt, an expression of feelings that he otherwise keeps completely hidden or repressed, some of which, too, it's been a long time since I've seen it, so I could be wrong, but some of it, I think, also emanates from those psyche vows that he has to make regularly, so I like the use of that. Dad, I'd like to see you again. I recall how we used to watch black and white movies together and musicals were your favorite. I remember you tutoring me in math. You instilled in me a strong work ethic. You should know I've chosen a career that you would approve of. Dedicated my life to the exploration of space. And I thank you for that. Some thrilling set pieces in Ad Astra. The cinematographer, Hoyta Van Hoytema, one of our best. We get that great Mad Max Fury Road on the moon bit. The opening scene where Roy is working on an antenna that's in space and is struck by power surges. And we're with him as he plummets to the earth, all without his pulse quickening. A beat, And I think that this year we get two of Brad Pitt's best performances of his career, two of the best of the year. I'm, of course, thinking about Once Upon a Time in Hollywood as well. I wouldn't necessarily say that Roy and Cliff Booth are similar, though both are professionals. Both are good at what they do. Both are isolated. But Cliff is charismatic in a playful way in the Tarantino film, whereas Roy is more subdued. But they are both comfortable in their own skin. And I think there's a restraint to Pitt's Roy that sets up some of the more emotional scenes. David Edelstein, in his mostly positive review over at Vulture, did wrestle with the ending a little bit, saying James Gray's space opera Ad Astra is so eerily, transfixingly beautiful that I want to purge from my mind its resolution, which reduces what precedes it to a shaggy dad story, an especially earthbound one. Without spoiling it, I can only say... I disagree completely. Oh, I loved the resolution (laughs) of this film. The revelation really is this perspective that's shared by Roy 
speaking to another character that, again, I can't spoil, but it moved me as a culmination of Roy's journey, his psychological journey, this relationship with his father, played by Tommy Lee Jones, who had disappeared so many years before. His mission is to seek him out. But it also moved me as this earnest assertion of humanism. And I guess amidst all the dread and anxiety we're talking about in the films we love from 2019, I really wanted that earnest assertion of humanism. It completely delivered for me, and it's a movie that I think you can only buy for some reason on most streaming platforms. It's pretty expensive. Well, I didn't buy it. No, <laughs> no, but it's out there on DVD and Blu-ray. I mean, Do you I love, like James Gray I, I overall? Like, I like James Gray. This is my favorite Gray. Wildly uneven for me. I, okay. I, the first James Gray film I really fell for personally was The Immigrant. I just thought on, on the budget he had, he recreated old New York in sort of a corner of the you know, theatrical corner in the Lower East Side of New York and told a very, very old school kind of melodrama in a way that I thought was kind of surprising and, and rather delicate and nicely acted and all that. And I felt the same way about The Lost City of Z. And and then everything about Ad Astra, I think there's some of his strengths, but an awful lot of stuff that he just plainly doesn't really have any personal directorial interest in, like the dune buggy chase you mentioned, which is kind of fun for yeah. a couple minutes, utterly unmotivated, and just simply written in there to give to, to trick people into thinking... What's wrong with fun at the movies, Michael? Actually, it's the wrong movie! It's, <laughs> I don't think the... I don't think the... You know, in the opening you mentioned, which is very artfully done, this whole, the, you know, the kind of sustained long mm-hmm. shots with uh, really a beautiful, seamless kind of combination of CGI and practical effects and all this, and it's uh, utterly straight out of gravity. And I just found too often you got Apocalypse Now narration, you know, you got uh, you got gravity uh, prologue, same as the prologue here. You got uh, too many times. I just, you know, as much as directors always and storytellers always have to, uh, they're all magpies and they have to pull bits and pieces from whatever will work for them, practically speaking, for the story they're going to tell this time, uh, whoever comes to this one, I just couldn't get the influences out of my head. Hmm. I'll help you out, Adam. Thank I, you. I, I, not top 10 for me, but I did like it. And, you know, the, the moon sequence, it's not only stunningly done. I mean, who would have thought James Gray would give us one of our best action sequences this year? But I think a film like this, it's hard for these space films sometime to get the immensity of the distance being covered to sink in for a viewer. Mm. And one way to do that, I think, is to have significant portions spent at locations that it takes the main character a long time to get to. So we're there at the moon. If we just stopped at the moon and then jumped off in the next scene to the to the you need to do something significant there to live in that space a little bit. Yeah. And it feels like a step in the journey. Not just go to McDonald's. I guess well <laughs> or Applebee's I don't, on I don't the moon. Think, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I like the touches there too. But um so anyway, that's it's you know, it's a it's a story reason that I think did work for me. And I do, you know, I had a quibble with the voiceover. I I I don't think it was a mistake. I just think it wasn't necessary, given those psych evals you mentioned. Well, it's also, also, it's just simply the quality of the writing we're talking about. Because I think all you hear about the Brad Pitt character, honestly, in voiceover, what he's telling himself or telling us. Pitt is giving us in the performance, yeah, but in, I, well, I think. And it's just, it's just this hammering one note, you know, clearly, clearly not telling the truth to himself, you know, sort of lying. I just, it's, it's just screenwriting. 101, that you, you should be able to do better than that. You need to do better than that. Just like the, I think the scene at the end, which is a key sort of reunion, let's mm-hmm. say, uh, you know, uh, again, it kind of a 
we've been there before in the movies and it can work perfectly well and even better than perfectly well again if the writing is there and the writing is just isn't there and as much as i love the director's medium of cinema the screenwriter has to has to give the actors something to work with a little more interesting than this james gray co-wrote this yeah. movie and that's where we disagree a little bit on the end there's a key line there that's the the line that puts everything into place for me that pitt's character says Tasha, you're I, not really going to have my back, though, I'm are you? not going to have your back. I've got Michael's back on this one. Okay. I was along for the shaggy dog segments of this story where you didn't really know where it was going to go or what kind of movie it was going to be. But for me, once that did come into resolve with that, that sequence that Michael's trying to allude to without giving things away... It wasn't the the game wasn't worth the candle for me. It it just it was so bluntly written. It was so unsatisfying in so many ways. The movie felt like it was building towards these these big thematic concepts that it never really paid off as far as I was concerned. I I found the ending even maybe the entire third act just very messy, uh, very confused in its storytelling and extremely unsatisfying. And then also towards the very end uh, in terms of, of what happens to the character, just thuddingly literal, built around a, a big symbolic moment that, again, seems like sub-screenwriting 101. I'm with you. I, we demand satisfaction, Adam. <laughs> Tasha and I did not get it. I think it's time to move on. Okay. <laughs> I think we should move on to Josh's number six. And you know what? I don't know if they're going to disagree with you, but I've got your back on this one, too. Thank you, Adam. Thank you. How, how the tables have turned I know. on this top ten show. I Seriously. don't know what's going on here. My number six is another... 2019 Elegy from a master filmmaker. I think we'll get to a higher profile one than this later on, but I have here Pedro Almodovar's Pain and Glory, somewhat autobiographical tale of this aging filmmaker who has health issues and does find creative rejuvenation. I don't think Elmodovar needed rejuvenation. I really like 2016's Julieta, but this is even better. I think this is among his best. Uh, we talked about Banderas' performance, or at least I did, Adam, I'm not sure if you had seen it at this point, on an earlier episode, and it really is a feat of, of physicality with the, the sickness that this filmmaker is experiencing, but also he captures a deep inner turmoil that's going on as well. Um, but here, I want to highlight a scene that doesn't involve Banderas at all, actually. He's not on the screen, but it does stick with me as one of the movie's key moments, and it's a memory of the director's sexual awakening when he was a child. I'm not going to spoil the details, but it's something the director as a boy sees in a new way for the first time, probably before he even understood why it was having such an effect on him, but it does. And it's so powerful that he faints. And, and leave it to Almodovar to, to capture human sexuality in a, in a way that's so beautiful and poignant, romantic and positive. And I, I just do think that that captures what a lot of his filmmaking does, particularly on that topic, but is is particularly astute here in Pain and Glory. The movie also ends with this moving meta shot that had to be catnip for you, Adam, I'm thinking. Totally. Yeah, just absolutely <laughs> leveled me. And I didn't realize how much I missed Almodovar mm. until I saw Pain and Glory. And that's my fault because I look at his IMDb and unlike you, I skipped Julieta in 2016. Can't really explain why. And I didn't watch I'm So Excited in 2013 either. So that's completely on me. But the three prior movies were all movies I saw in the theater, Volver and Broken Embraces and The Skin I Live In even. 
you're right. I know what movie you're alluding to, of course, when we talk about maybe a filmmaker more in winter, right? You definitely get that here. Almodovar isn't up to some of his usual tricks. There's certainly a lot less shock value. There's really no shock value probably at all. And I think the movie overall is paced the way Banderas's character moves, which is pretty slowly. But it's just as vibrant and just as vivid due to the use of color. The color here, I mean, it seems obvious when you're talking about Almodovar, but even in his apartment, in terms of the paintings and the chairs and and even the the mugs he's using, it's it's everywhere. And you, of course, see it most expressly in the flashbacks back to his childhood, which we understand why later they're rendered in the rainbow glow that they are. But I think also I want to point out not only one of the best final shots of the year, but one of the best lines of the year. Sam and I were talking about this, one that every critic has to ponder (laughs) profoundly, I think, which is when early in the movie he's talking about one of his old films. A lot of the plot revolves around a film of his. I think it had come out 30 years earlier or something. It's an anniversary and it's getting some exposure. And he realizes now that he had kind of maligned this film that he made, his breakout film, and now he likes it. And he likes the central performance that he didn't like so much all those years ago. And a character says, your eyes have changed. The movie is the same. And that's, of course, that's the case. The art doesn't actually change. It's all of us who change around yeah, the art. True. That's true. And also, I, I mean, I like, I like the film a great deal. I, I, I like to see this a second time, too, before really kind of kind of figuring out where it fits for me with, with the Elmodovar films that I really love. But it's just at this point in his career and at this point in sort of uh, my eyes career, I guess, <laughs> you, just, you just respond to anybody who can consistently turn out a luxuriant piece of work. And, and it's not just artifice or surface, too. He's, he's found a way to use everything he loves uh, in – in art and in cinema and in life, just you know, as you say, color. Uh, I just, I just think you know, everything has sort of exactly the right sort of tone and framing. And he just knows he's he's got a link to old Hollywood in that regard. That he, God knows, he loves you know old Hollywood uh, romance and melodrama and all that because he he recycles them in very clever ways all the time. But um, I, I just think he knows he knows that kind of craft. He just respects it so much, and he and he knows how to let. I think now what he's learned is maybe he lets a perform a central performance breathe easily mm-hmm. instead of uh, manipulating it uh, carefully. I think I, I, what I found here with Banderas is it's a reactive role, but it's also uh, it's also very deeply felt. I think and and he's there's a reason that at the end of the year you go back and you think you know Antonio Banderas is damn good in this and mm-hmm. he's getting a lot of best actor nods from various you know organizations and uh, I hope I hope it kind of goes that way for the Oscars actually yeah I don't know uh, there are there are, <laughs> here we go there are a mode of our films that are among my favorite films I think the skin I live in is uh, just a, a an immaculately crafted piece of work um, I think didn't talk to her and all about my mother are just amazing films the sequence that Josh calls out, the sexual coming of age moment, like everything that surrounds that, that entire storyline, including issues between his parents and how they come to move to this new place that's a very visually striking space. And then everything that falls out from that moment in terms of his sexuality and his future, this key relationship that happens late in life and coming back to it mentally and emotionally and artistically like later in life – 
that entire piece felt like the core of a different movie to me. To me, all of that was just it was a brilliant film. And then it's bookended in a lot of flotsam. I just I found this movie very disorganized in some ways. And the the opening sequence where Banderas talks about his physical ailments while weird computer images play on screen. And then we talk about his childhood in the choir and there's all of the business with the film and the actor and, and drugs. All of that seemed extraneous to the story that's at the core of the film, the the strongest and most beautifully shot and most emotionally evocative parts of the film just seem to have all this detritus around them that uh, to me was not nearly as emotionally effective and wasn't really assembled in a way that felt linear to me. Mm-hmm. Well, we, the- we talk a lot. We talk a lot when we talk about biopics about how many of them don't work because the filmmaker tries to make a life about a moment and strips everything else away and doesn't create a story that feels anything like a real life. This does feel like a real life, but that means there's all sorts of bits and pieces in it that make Maybe to somebody who isn't in that life doesn't necessarily feel like an important part of the story. Mm. He's it, definitely he's definitely settling accounts at, at this point, this autumnal point in his career, right? But I do think that, and I, I take your point about the skin I live in uh, being a much you know tighter, kind of better constructed story. But like in a case like that, that one is just so blatantly lifted from Eyes Without a Face. That is and, fair. And, and it's just it's too much. It just doesn't feel personal even within the melodramatic thriller form at all and this one I, I agree it's a little it's a little it's got it's discursive is what it is but I think I think it's kind of movingly so I, I really I really felt like you know it's 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 a kind of craft that I can I can uh, let me kind of carry it because it's so it's so relaxed about what it's trying to do, which is only so much, but it is, in fact, just trying to get his own bits of his own life figured out for himself and sort of like worked into the story. And that's not anybody else's movie. And that's, that's only, why all that's those only his, other know. scenes that you're talking about that maybe seem extraneous all work for me and come into focus at the end. And I think we're maybe dancing around it a little bit. It's not as if this is a movie that has anything you can truly spoil, and yet I wouldn't necessarily want to give away the small but deeply felt revelation that comes at the end of this film, but it puts all of the other flashback scenes that we have watched in perspective, doesn't it? I think it did for me anyway. Yeah. And I think flotsam is actually a good word. That's the right word, Tasha, because this, this is a man adrift in a lot of these things that his life has become, including looking at medical x-rays and that's kind of defined. um, and, And as that has defined his life, Art has less defined it, and that's what he's lost. And so I would also say, and we'll dance around this a little bit, that the sexual awakening scene is not only an epiphany for him because of the sexuality, it's because of the way art was hand in hand with that. And so for him at this later age, he's recalling that and also getting that artistic drive back to it. It it inspires him, gives him the inspiration, gives him the the need to clear away some of that junk um, that we've been seeing and living through with him and have that creative focus that he's lost. And I think that that's kind of the um, the excitement of the movie for me. So Pain and Glory, unfortunately, isn't a movie, at least on a quick Google search, that I can see is out anywhere to view, not still in theaters either. So one, if you're curious and haven't seen it already, you'll just have to keep an eye out for how you can catch up with Pedro Almodovar's Pain and Glory. Yeah, it should be streaming, I suspect, uh, January or February. Okay. We have heard 
all of our number six choices for best film of 2019. Tasha, you are the only person who has a number five that we can talk about now because our other picks are going to come up in part two. What's your pick? So Shia LaBeouf has been a controversial figure for a little while uh, due to various public meltdowns and, and missteps, various things that he's done. And stepping away from that into a series of kind of a performance art stunts that I personally have found fascinating and have tracked them very closely and have particularly been interested in how they all seem to be about trying to engage with the world, trying to find and communicate with other people. But there are people who have found them kind of, you know, precious and overcalculated and ridiculous. So for, for quite a while now, people have had very strong opinions one way or the other about Shia LaBeouf's career, about his interviews, about his performance, about his public presence. Honey Boy, to me, is a film that explains so much of everything that we've seen in the past, while also providing a central performance that's just astonishing and just absolutely striking. Now, are you talking about Shia LaBeouf? I am talking about Shia LaBeouf performing as his own father. Okay. I see you. Contrary real hard. Be a 12-year-old. Pie fight. It's not a pie fight. Think it through. What's your mother got a job for? Just in case. In case what? In case you fail. In case it don't work out. Yes, man. She's filling your head full of fear. I pump you full of strength. Because we're on a team, and I know you got what it takes. You're a star, and I know it. That's why I'm here. I'm your cheerleader, honey boy. This is a, a fairly autobiographical film, more or less about what it was like to grow up as a child star uh, being managed by his own father, who was apparently a, uh, a somewhat lackadaisical, uh, yet fairly involved and, and focused figure in his own life. Erratic, unpredictable, self-driven, egotistical, um, yet at the same time there for his child in a way that a lot of stage parents in a lot of these stories aren't. He's a pretty complicated figure and Shia LaBeouf plays him himself it's one of those roles that the actor disappears into so seamlessly uh, you can almost hardly believe that that you're actually seeing this fairly familiar face who's been in a ton of films Noah Jupe plays essentially the the Shia LaBeouf as child actor uh, figure and the two of them have a contentious and complicated relationship the movie kind of travels around in time Lucas Hedges also plays kind of a an older maybe mid-20s version of the Shia LaBeouf character who is a big movie star but is now an addict and is emotionally troubled and is going through therapy and rehab and trying to kind of sort his life out so narratively it's pretty tangled it's pretty complicated moving back and forth as it, it tries to suss out this story. Parts of it feel very much like the Florida Project, as the, the Shia LaBeouf character and his father live with a variety of other transients and, and kind of people caught in between as the, the young boy is trying to navigate his relationship with other people and the wider world, with cinema, with fame, there's so many different things going on. It's a pretty complicated movie, but it's never the kind of complicated movie that, that loses you, that, that gives you headaches trying to suss out the timeline or the emotional through line or how the pieces fit together. I found it 
moving and emotional and evocative and just very well told in terms of communicating what is going on in this boy's life, all of the different elements that are pushing him and pulling him as he moves towards coming of age, as he moves towards the idea of eventually rejecting his father, but as he also navigates how much he needs his father and needs validation and confirmation and help from him in various ways. I just thought it was an incredibly well-told story, but also an incredibly well-acted story. I'm with you overall, I think, on the performances, Tasha. I'll be honest and say that while I have a lot of respect for what Shia LaBeouf is doing portraying his father, there's a little bit of calculation to it. And honestly, maybe it's just those glasses that (laughs) that clearly are meant to sort of allow him to tap into that character. And we see his father the real person later in the film and the credits and recognize that that was a very deliberate choice. But I really love Jupe's performance, and I love Lucas Hedges, too, as the older version of this kid, where you see in both of them the preciousness that I think we saw in a young Shia LaBeouf, but also that heightened intellect and that clear talent. He had a preternatural sensitivity, and you mix that with this trauma that he was experiencing growing up that we didn't know about watching a young Shia LaBeouf, but we know it now from seeing this film— it makes for a really volatile, but at times really exciting combination. And it can produce great art. And the Hedges version of LaBeouf says at one point in rehab, even something along those lines, like, this is what I tap into. You're you're taking away everything that makes me so damn good at what I do. He He certainly isn't shy about letting people know that he is good at his job. The resolution of the film is a little too neat for me. It felt maybe like a little bit of wish fulfillment and a little bit rushed. I didn't love the direct reference to the meta-ness of it, which Mm -hmm. it's already so full of meta-ness that I didn't need that element either. But I just really quickly want to point out one of the best opening montages of the year. When we get to our rap party scenes, this one will be a contender for me for openings because it's Hedges just staring at the screen No real reaction on his face, waiting for something. We don't know what. He seems to be attached to some kind of harness. It's basically LaBeouf in like a Transformers-type film. He's acting against a screen. A lot of chaos and commotion seem to be going on. And then after that long pause, we just watch him push his hands out towards us and yell no. And he gets pulled back, yanked by the wires. And it's just some wire work for this stunt. But... What it does is sets up this whole idea of his whole life. His whole life has been about this blunt trauma, right? It just is so perfect that even now in this moment where he's getting to do everything he'd ever want to do for a living, he's just being yanked. And then we watch him not be able to get out of the the wire. It's this harness that is just stuck on him. And he is burdened by it and weighted down by it. We watch him try to wrestle with that. And there's another flashback to him as a younger kid, the Jupe character doing a commercial similar scene very deliberately showing us that this is this has been a pattern throughout his whole life. It's a perfect metaphor for everything we see that follows the relationship with him and his father. So I did love that opening. And Honey Boy is a film that I think is still in theaters in select cities if you haven't seen it. You make that metaphor sound so blunt, and it's maybe too obvious. But I didn't feel that way watching it. Yeah, it, it certainly doesn't feel that way watching it. When you when you spell it out that way, it, it maybe seems a little uh, over the over the top, a little on the nose. But in the moment, it's just a moment of of shock and emotion. That's it. Yeah, and that's why it works. It's just a, one of of many processes you see throughout the film explaining like how good an actor he is, in that he can turn these emotions on and off and see 
seeing the place that he comes from and how much he has to turn off in order to to be this other person that he is on screen, I think is just sort of endlessly fascinating. I love a film about filmmaking. Yeah. And this is a film in very small parts about filmmaking, but it's mostly just a film about how one becomes the person one is as an adult, like mm. where where people come from. Mm. It's a great story. We are ready for at least one number four choice. Tasha, you again doing the honors. The only one with a number four pick that is an outlier. This is not a movie about making movies. No. But a movie about trauma. Very this much. This is I will I will just bluntly say because I, I feel like people deserve to know this going in. We were we were fairly heavily warned about the content of this movie going into it at the Sundance Film Festival and I was I was glad for that warning. This is straight up a rape revenge thriller. And that is not particularly a genre that I, I like or appreciate. They can be facile, uh, they can be exploitative, they can be tiresome, and they're so often grueling. Jennifer Kent's The Nightingale is in fact pretty grueling. Uh, it's it's exhausting because it's not just about a woman who is uh, oppressed and abused and raped and then goes through a, a horrible gauntlet of trauma after that. It's also fundamentally about racism. Uh, it's fundamentally about prejudice and systematic inequality and genocide. It's about all of these terrible things going on in Tasmania in the 1800s around the Aboriginal uh, tribes and how they're being systematically wiped out uh, by white colonialists, essentially. All of this sounds very heavy and very depressing, and quite frankly, it is. On the other hand, The Nightingale is just one of the most envisioned movies of the entire year. Jennifer Kent, who previously did The Babadook, which is one of the more strange and daring horror films of its era, one of the more just exceptionally heavy and, and weighty but surprising uh, horror films I think I've ever seen in terms of some of the specific things it taps into. She very obviously has a talent for for building dread and building tension and building stakes. And the injustice and inequality that she puts into this movie just lays on your skin like a heated, weighted blanket throughout. I wish I were yonder. We don't want no trouble. That's just the way, isn't it? You don't want trouble, but sometimes trouble wants you. And yet the film is so exquisitely shot. It's so incredibly beautiful watching these characters move through the Tasmanian wilderness, surrounded by forests and mountains and cliffs and rivers and rocky outcroppings. It's a beautiful environment to be in. And watching a couple of the characters slowly come to bond and understand each other uh, becomes key to having something to seize onto in this movie that is not horrifying, that is not depressing. This movie eventually comes to a place that I found extremely unexpected um, and uplifting in a way that I found surprising after the oppression of the movie. It is not a film that I'm eager to revisit. It's not even necessarily a film that I'm eager to recommend to people. It's mm -hmm. it's one of those films that if you recommend to people, you feel like you're kind of recommending self-harm in a way. But I, I can't fault the filmmaking. I can't fault the writing. I can't fault the, the tremendous acting. It's It belongs on a list of the best films of the year because it's one of the best crafted films of the year. It's terrific. I mean, I, I, I'm, I'm with you on 
going back to it a second time would be very difficult emotionally, and it was it was not easy the first no. time. But it, I think she's she's she treats those themes even it's, even within the the rape revenge thriller genre, if you want to call it that. It sort of fits there, but I never felt. You know, I never, I never felt that that sense of resentment in my own responses. Like, you're really going to put me through this just so I can see somebody get killed at the end? You know, it's not. But the story doesn't work quite like that because more happens and more unexpectedly, like you say, uh, than you'd expect. And she is, uh, you know, with the Babadook and now this, two utterly different films. And she, but and she's deadly serious about the theme she addresses. But she is. Uh, she is a real artist behind the camera, and I, I just you know yeah you know first film amazing remarkable first films are hard enough to find. I think you get two in a row, you know like like Jennifer Kent or like Jordan Peele with Get Out and Us. That's that's almost more remarkable. As different as the Babadook and Night, the Nightingale are, I think you're right, Michael. But what I loved most about it are the threads I could see between them, and that vision, the filmmaking vision you described, Tasha, I think is what most captured me, especially when she does bring the story out into the wilderness, and that's where it almost becomes a ghost story in a way. There, there's an alternative reading, and I don't think the narrative supports this, but that Claire, the main character, could be a ghost, you know, this this haunting, vengeful spirit. A lot of the imagery emphasizes that, and the way she's mixing genre a little bit there, too, is, is really impressive. You mentioned the landscape, and that's where I think that the decision to shoot in the Academy ratio really pays off here. It's more of that square format. And you're right. Inevitably, no matter how hellish the landscape might be or how difficult it is to traverse any kind of movie that's going through that terrain, I think is going to take on a sense of being about the landscape. That becomes the main character, if you will. It never is in this film. And I think it's because we're always focused singularly on these faces and the horror that they are going through. For me, in terms of comparing it to other revenge thrillers, the sheer volume of pain that those two main characters, I think, are kind of vessels for makes this film unique. And that's echoed here in some comments from a listener, Shoshana Rosenbaum, who says, The Nightingale is the best film about colonialism I've ever seen. Hmm. It was underseen in part due to the critical conversation around the film being mainly focused on sexual violence. I hope this film will continue to find its audience because anyone who has taught history from a Eurocentric triumphalist perspective, as most of us in the U.S. continue to be, should give this a watch. It distinguishes itself by giving both its female and indigenous protagonists complexity and agency and by not shying away from confronting genocide. All true. And yes, if you have the stomach for it, I suppose, if you think that you are prepared to watch a movie that is a very difficult watch, it is available now streaming on most platforms. We're about ready to wrap up our outlier portion of our Best of 2019 roundtable. We have one more voicemail to share. Hi, Adam and Josh. This is Sean Gilman. My favorite movies of the year are all kind of obvious picks. Uh, the Irishman, Little Women, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, and of course, Ash's Purest White, as uh, we discussed in the Contemporary Chinese Cinema Marathon. So if I'm going to, to highlight one right now, I want it to be Takashi Miike's First Love, which is a crazy gangster action movie that's also a weird kind of romance. It's just really inventive and a whole lot of fun. Mike, I think, is 
having more fun making movies than anybody in the world. And it's an absolute delight every time we get to see one, which unfortunately is not that often considering how many movies he actually makes. I hope you all get a chance to check it out sometime. It should be showing up on Netflix sometime in the near future. Thanks and have a happy 2020. First Love, definitely an outlier pick, unseen, I'm pretty sure, by all of us. Oh, no. You I saw it at Fest? It was absolutely a hoot. I'm I looking forward presume. to more people seeing that movie. It did have a, a theatrical release, brief as it was, but I think it's probably going to find a much better home on Netflix. That movie is so much fun, in part because it picks up on all of these very familiar archetypes. The the young boxer with a, a triumphant future and the uh, down on her luck call girl and various kinds of like gangsters and drug dealers uh, who are in contention with each other. And then it just kind of throws away everything you know about them and just kind of does its own thing with, with all these ideas. Mm-hmm. Fairly early in the film, I really thought First Love was going to be a pretty predictable movie about all of these types uh, engaging in the kind of things that these types do. And then it just completely flipped the script. It's very funny, which is shocking for a movie with these particular uh, uh, characters in it. And by by the end, where you've got people running around with axes and samurai swords and uh, somebody uh, covered with bullet holes and drugs, uh, like literally drugs all over his body, uh, yelling about what an amazing experience he's happening in the middle of a car chase. It just gets rambunctious. <laughs> it's a really fun film. Huh. Well, I'm eager to see it on Netflix when it eventually gets there. But you heard Sean mention it. Michael, your number three movie of the year, a movie that Sean actually recommended to us, Josh, when we invited him to curate our contemporary Chinese cinema marathon. It is Ashes Purest White. Oh man, I, and I had almost forgotten about that. I had a, I, it really didn't come to mind readily until I started looking back to the first three four months of the year, and I, I think I, I think I saw it in late March or early April. And Jia Zhangka is, you know, one of the one of the half dozen great filmmakers in the world right now. And I, I tragically, and this is embarrassing, tend to forget this because the films are small and quiet, and life does not necessarily let us tune in easily to even masters like that. And this is, I think, <laughs> this is my favorite. You know, Irishman aside, which I love. This is the gangster film of 2019. I mean, it's set in this provincial Chinese burg, this this grubby little town, uh, coal mining town, and and the coal mine is basically, you know, uh, on the ropes, and you know, there's a lot of unemployment, and it's really just a, a small story about about the local kind of gang lord and his lover. And there's a there's a crime uh, involved, and she has to take the rap for it. Goes to prison for five years, and uh, he is mysteriously absent. Uh, does not really come to visit her, and the whole rest of the film is about why that's so and what she does about it when she gets out. So it's it's got you know kind of a straight ahead revenge saga to it. It's uh, it's got an amazing look at recent China because it's set not in the present but in the recent past, mm-hmm. and um, Zhangka's always had this unbelievable. Uh, eye for uh, every change in the natural and human-made life cycles of his of his country, and and it, I, I just don't 
I don't know of another gangster film remotely like this one in setting, in character, in, the, in these weird little flourishes of humor. There's a scene I still remember where, where the gangster's mall is going to visit some businessman's factotum in some, you know, I forget which city it is, and she, she's in the middle of a conversation, and the elevator door is closing, and she has an empty water bottle, and she just sort of like puts mm-hmm. it right in there. <laughs> Great sound. Door opens. Once again, you know, and it's just like, wow, there's a detail I've never seen in a movie. And, you know, that's that's the kind of, you know, sudden sort of burst of weird real life in this otherwise kind of a stylized gangster picture, utterly like anything I've ever seen. And um, I, I hope more people discover it. You know, didn't, didn't get much of a theatrical audience, but all kinds of great films from Amadovar on down are struggling for a theatrical audience these days. And this is why I honestly feel that, you know, to remind people at the end of a year, end of a long, busy, you know, many, many, many films in a given year now, in our streaming lives, how many more thousands of options do we have? You know, it takes somebody to, you know, you need to kind of be pointed out. Okay, see this. See Ashes Purest White, even if you've never heard of it before. Yeah, it's really strong. Easily my best picture choice when it was part of our contemporary Chinese cinema marathon. And I think it's probably, yeah, I think it's top 30 for me for the year overall. Hmm. We did have our category, which is our favorite scene or moment from the marathon, and you, myself, Nathaniel Myers, who helps us out with our marathons, and Sean Gilman all picked a scene from this movie as our favorite moment of the marathon. Josh, you and Nathaniel went with the scene that is that crime, the moment that she ends up having to pay for, and that fight scene, it's really great. The post-breakup concert, where she's just watching this pop song being performed. Right, right breaks out into tears or kind of subtly cries watching it was Sean's favorite scene. And for me, it's that reunion scene in the motel where she finally confronts face-to-face her former lover. And you just see that distance between them kind of play out in real time. It is a really strong movie, Ashes Purest White, that is also available via streaming. And that is part one of our top 10 films of 2019. The Outlier Picks, movies that only made one of our lists, and you can find all of the titles and their rankings over at filmspotting.net. Just click on lists at the top of the page. Part two comes next week. We'll shift from the outliers to our quote-unquote consensus picks for the best films of the year, and you'll hear our choices for what is the number one film of 2019. Tasha, Michael, you guys were great, as always. Tasha, you know, you disagreed with me too much, but that's and, fine. And Josh, don't, and Josh don't leave out how right. often I've disagreed with Josh. I no. think you might have even we, disagreed we love with Michael. I mean, well, there's, a, get, we, there's, out of hand. there's a contractual thing that would prevent that, <laughs> for but, sure. But, uh, yeah. Where can people find more of your work online, Michael? Well, if you can navigate the Tribune's website, which is kind of a whole other episode in itself, uh, you can go to uh, chicagotribune.com slash movies. Movies. Tasha. You can find me on Polygon.com, where I am the relatively freshly minted film and TV editor. Still doing more editing than writing, but you can find me hither and thither uh, talking about movies. Or you can just uh, come hit me up on Twitter, where I am Tasha Robinson. Talk about things there that I don't have time to review, because I'm editing people who are reviewing them. And I'm uh, Phillips Tribune on Twitter. And 
the podcast, The Next Picture Show, you've got a great lineup coming up over the holidays. Yeah, we had to pre-record a lot of episodes just because we were dealing with so many movies at a prestige season. So I can tell you that not only do we have a lot of great titles and pairings coming up, we've got a lot of great episodes coming up because I've already been through those conversations. We just finished up uh, with Brick and Knives Out and two of Ryan Johnson's films. Right now, even as we speak, uh, they're recording Uncut Gems versus Killing of a Chinese Bookie. We're going to do the new Little Women and the 92 Little Women coming up soon. And uh, at the moment, we're looking at 1917 versus Children of Men, two movies that that both kind of rotate around these big single shot action yeah. uh, sequences. So a, a lot of good pairings and a lot of really amazing films. Yeah, you can find that show wherever you get your podcast or at nextpictureshow.net. All right. Thanks again, Michael and Tasha. We'll all get together next week and do this once more. If listeners want more film spotting, maybe track down some of our original reviews of some of the titles we've talked about, you can head to the show archives at filmspotting.net. We've got reviews, interviews, and top fives going back, yeah, about 15 years to 2005. That's also where you can vote in the current film spotting poll. We're asking you which film should win the 2019 Golden Brick Award. And keep in mind, This vote really carries some weight. It is factored in to the eventual winner. To order Film Spotting t-shirts or other Film Spotting merch, visit filmspotting.net slash shop. And to subscribe to the weekly Film Spotting newsletter, you can do that at filmspotting.net slash newsletter. Adam and I are on social media as well, Twitter and Facebook. Adam is at Film Spotting, and I'm at Larson on Film. Out in limited release here over Christmas, Uncut Gems a movie that came up a lot here on this episode, my number nine film of the year. And in wide release, Spies in Disguise, 1917 from Sam Mendes, Just Mercy, and Little Women from Greta Gerwig. There will be more talk of that film here next week on the show. Film Spotting is produced by Golden Joe Dassault and Sam Van Hogren. Without Sam and Golden Joe, this show wouldn't go. Our production assistant is Andy Mitchell. Thanks also to Candace Griffiths and the listeners of the Film Spotting Advisory Board. And special thanks to everyone at WBEZ Chicago. More information is available at WBEZ.org. For Film Spotting, I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar. Thanks for listening. This conversation can serve no purpose anymore. Goodbye. Film Spotting is listener supported. Join the Film Spotting family at filmspottingfamily.com and get access to ad free episodes, monthly bonus shows, our weekly newsletter, and for the first time, all in one place, the entire Film Spotting archive going back to 2005. That's at filmspottingfamily.com.